Welcome to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. All right, Matt, we're back for some more Dune action, and we're going to be diving into what we have dubbed Chapter 6, and we're going to be running all the way through the end of chapter 11. So 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. It sounds like a lot, but it's, um, I mean, it's only... Uh, it's in, our, in our book, it's page 66 through 132. Not too bad. Right. And in full disclosure, a little peek behind the veil. I've reverted to my Frank Herbert Dune series intro by Neil Gaiman hardcover. <laughs> 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 because it's bigger. So my page numbers are not going to be the same, but if you guys are using the copy Matt's talking about, awesome. If you happen to be using this hardcover, awesome. It's really cool. It's a it's a penguin. Who did this one? I don't know. But um it's a <laughs> it's uh it's got the series intro by Neil Gaiman and it's hardcover. Penguin books, and it was like thirty bucks or something on Amazon. Oh, here you go. ISBN number 9780143111580. There you go. No problem, guys. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, all of you store that in your Terminator brain processors and remember As, that for later. <laughs> store that. Use your Mentat discipline and uh, mm-hmm. store that number for later reference since you're driving to work and trying not to spill coffee on your legs. <laughs> I just remember working at a bookstore. ISBN was, was everything. That's how you identified books. ISBN. Is it? Anyway. We're going to dive in, and um, yes, why don't we, without further ado, Matthew, why don't you start off the uh, little introduction here that we read with each chapter? Yes, indeed. How do we approach the study of Muad'Dib's father? A man of surpassing warmth and surprising coldness was the Duke Leto Atreides. Yet many facts open the way to this duke. His abiding love for his Bene Gesserit lady, the dreams he held for his son, the devotion with which men served him. You see him there, a man snared by destiny, a lonely figure with his light dimmed behind the glory of his son. Still, one must ask, what is the son but an extension of the father? From Muad'Dib Family Commentaries by the Princess Irulan. I love how destiny is spelt with a capital D. Yes. Like a divine destiny, a, a destiny that has been arranged and chosen for you. Yes. Not happenstance. Yes. Uh, there is a lot in this chapter that I like. There's a lot of great talking points this week, and um, yeah. I'm really looking forward to diving into this. Uh, obviously, this week we're going to be talking a lot about Leto, Leto's relationship with Paul, Leto's relationship with Jessica. We're going to be learning about the shout-out Mapes. Uh, Lady Fenring's message to Jessica. Uh, there's going to be a, a lot of interesting stuff to talk about here, and I'm looking forward to it. And what a great way to start uh, by giving us a little bit of insight into the man Duke Leto. You know, we didn't, we haven't gotten much yet. We don't know, know much yeah. about the man yet. So, and, what, and I think I talked about this a little bit last time. But one of the things I still find so interesting with these chapter headings again, is that they are obviously written in the future of this world. It's a, it's a future looking back on this story. Mm. Um, and so I always really enjoy this contrast of, you know, the way the future people talk about the Duke, Duke Leto. He seems so, like they described, like ensnared and trapped and, and overwhelmed by what's happening. But when you are in the story and you see the Duke and you're, you're watching other people take in the Duke you know, as his presence, 
you're like, how is this guy going to fuck up? Like, this guy seems like he's on top of it. Like, he seems capable. He seems intelligent. He seems like he is thinking ahead and he's a respected ruler and a feared ruler by his enemies. And I'm like, it's so interesting that we see this, you know, the, the live version of him as so powerful in a way. But we, we, we get this feeling of doom coming for him because it's already been essentially foretold. And some of that gets revealed in this next section of book we're going to be discussing in that his own thoughts are of him understanding. Uh, he says later on here, and I don't want to skip too far ahead, but he says, I will never see Kaladin again. Yes. He, 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 know, he, he has this sneaking suspicion, which is one of the things that makes him so intriguing and powerful and respected, as it says right at the beginning, you know, the love for his son, of course, the Benny Jesuit lady, this destiny, this lonely figure, yet this figure that, that men serve with devotion. And I think that's very important when it comes to this whole opening here. When Paul just observes his father entering this training room in the beginning, he feels this sense of presence in his father, someone, quote, totally here. And that is something I find interesting because so much of being here is undermined by Paul's box test where he is not there at all. He's not present with, he's trying to be completely unpresent so he doesn't feel the pain. And, and there's this thing, there's this temporal finality to, I think, Duke Leto Atreides that makes him feel, based on, remember, with the characters we've met so far outside of, say, Gurney or Hawats or even Yue, they've, you know, the characters we've really focused on, Paul and, and Jessica and uh, the Reverend Mother Mohayim, is there's some mysticalness about all of them. I mean, even through for Hawa, the master of assassins is a mentat. We don't even know what that means yet. We think we do, a human computer or something, something designed to replace the computers, right? But here is this grounded, real guy that feels, uh, you know, I, I don't want to beat the word up, but it, there's a temporalness to him, a realness, like a, you can touch it. He's, he is... He doesn't have that same air of mystery. He has more of a different air about him other than every, unlike every of the other character we've sort of met at this point. Yeah. A yeah. grounded man, right? And I mean, I, I'm glad you brought up that specific quote of, you know, a man fully here, you know, fully present. And it also makes me wonder, like one of the notes I wrote down, is he too present? Is he not looking forward enough? Is he is he trapped in his circumstances and unable is his vision clouded by his you know current circumstances it's a good question to ask i think part of i think part of what what's going on with leto as we go through this is of course paul reminding us for the father nothing he's thinking of that as as his dad's talking to me are you hard at work they're chit-chatting and the duke forcing himself to be sort of casual when he sits down with his son and his son being concerned about what's going on and him admitting to his son that this is dangerous, something he may not have done with his with his regular men, so to speak. But right, right. But I think the honesty he has with his son that Leto also has with himself. And I think by the end of this discussion tonight, I think we're going to come to see that Leto is very much a man, maybe maybe not aware of his destiny with a capital D, like say somebody with 
Paul, Jessica, or Mohayim's abilities would be able to sort of discern or divinate might be the right word, but perhaps he's more aware of the machinations that exist politically that he's found himself in. And I think he understands the gravity of the situation he's in and the sort of inexorable push towards his, his demise. I think he kind of knows it's, it's like a, it's like when you're watching a, mo- a mafia picture and the guy knows I'm going to do this thing and then that's, that's it. They're going to come for me and I'm going to let them come for me. Cause that's the rules. Right. Right. right? Like he, he already feels that it's, it's set out before him and he's already in it. And I, and I think his plan now is to try to make this as safe as possible. Not saying he's, he's nihilistic, not saying he wants to throw his life away, but I think he, he's real about the situation he finds himself in with the odds being stacked against him. And I think he's trying to make sure Paul and Jessica and the rest of the house are safe at this point. But, right. but I like this, you know, it's, um, it's, it's this interesting moment where Paul has this information and he's thinking, how did that woman seal my tongue? Because he wants to tell his dad, I know of this destiny. I want to warn you. And he is, he finds himself unable to speak. And I just love that this is such an interesting way to show magic that maybe magic's the wrong word, but this supernatural hold that she has over him to not warn him. Right. Right. I love that. Yeah. It's such a subtle way of doing it that he just finds himself unable to speak in that moment to speak the specific thing he wants to say. Right. And you know, the Duke is saying that I understand you're afraid of Arrakis. They talk about Shom. He talks about, I believe he says something along the lines of, um, by getting Arrakis, his majesty has forced, forced us a Chome directorship, which is a subtle game because, the, you know, the Chome is controlled by the spice and Arrakis with its spice is our avenue into Chome. There's more to Chome than melange. And that's when we learn that he is, he, he talks a lot about, yes, it is a frightening place. Yes, there is going to be dangers here. But what's important is him talking about the political side of what's going on here. All Paul has heard so far is that something is in motion for the father, nothing, Benny Gesserit prophecy, stuff he doesn't quite understand yet, but intuits because he has the power. Now dad is sort of laying out what it looks like sort of in real time in flesh and blood with pen and paper, right? Mm, right, right. And I love how, you know, in this moment, I think, I think it is Leto actually looking ahead a little bit because he is walking his son, walking Paul through the, 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 the machinations of, of Chome and the other houses and the Harkonnens and yes. what all this starts to lead to. And he's pointing out that, uh, yes, we, we control the spice, but that's not all of it. And he, he even starts to point out how, you know, the Chome's profits depend mostly on spice. It's not the only thing they do, but it is a huge part of all the other houses, you know, their, their parts and their ownership of Chome, all of those profits mostly come out of the spice. And yes. Paul starts to, starts to realize, well, then we should look around and see which houses have been hoarding spice, like in anticipation of it possibly being disrupted, because mm. those would be the people who could outlast a situation they, they know would disrupt the spice if they're involved. And I love the way that unfolds, Matt, because I love the way they're talking about it. It leads in with a handful of spice can buy a home on, on this planet, two, two pile or Tupole. I don't know how you say it, but that's, that's, an, that's amazing. One handful, a house. Right. So when you start, you, think, you start thinking about that, 
And that's when Leto sort of leads him by saying, imagine if something should reduce spice production. And as you already pointed out, Paul intuits this, making a killing. Well, wow, while others would be out in the cold. And this is where the Duke says, well, guess what? The Harkonnens have been stockpiling it for 20 years. And that's when Paul says, oh, so they're going to they're going to hope you fail in production and get blamed or cause your failure in production for you to get blamed. Right. It's, it, it's, right. it is, you know, the, the, the mafia sort of comparison is interesting in this situation because death is on the line. <laughs> it's not, it's not like a corporate job, right. <clears throat> Where your reputation and perhaps you being fired is on the line in this they're They're basically saying, here you go. This is a super important task for you. And it's so important that it needs to be run so well, because if it isn't, it's a problem because it affects everybody's pocket. So it's a right. huge amount of responsibility. Do you want it? Now, where I like the mafia comparison is they will, you know, you'll see in mafia pictures or you'll read stories where they say, hey, we're moving you up and now you're responsible for this. And all of a sudden you got to come up with money and you're like, oh shit. Now <laughs> people have higher expectations of me. Now- you know, you, you would see this in the Sopranos and you see this in this where it's like, like Duke Leto couldn't say no to this assignment. He got this assignment and Duke Leto is very popular with the Landshrod, which the emperor doesn't like. So by putting him in a precarious position, one in which he knows the Harkonnen have already, he's already made a deal with the Harkonnen. We've, we've talked about Harkonnen Livery are going to show up. They're going to, you know, they're going to help in this attack that's supposed to happen. And, and right. he just tells him flat out, we, we, we just kind of know flat out, oh, they're stockpiling because maybe during this upheaval, they'll still have it. Oh, oh, and if, and if people aren't stockpiling, they're going to be very desperate. Like you said, it's so much of their economy. So many of these houses rely on the melange that to disrupt it even a little bit and you have chaos. And who are they going to look to when the chaos comes? Right, right. Later, he's going to be on the chopping block. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's the other thing I find interesting about this, too, is that a big part of this plan is to essentially destroy Leto's reputation among the other houses. Because if, if, if they, he's in charge of Arrakis and the spice production is disrupted, they're going to be the ones who suffer, really. Yeah, absolutely. And, it's, and it looks to be his fault. Right, absolutely. It, 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 and they don't care. Uh, he, has a, he has a line here where he says... They'd look the other way no matter what was done to me. This is in regards to reduction in their income. Right. And that's when we get this sort of interesting setting plot point where, where, where the boy wonders, well, what if they attacked with atomics? He's like, well, nothing that flagrant. No open defiance of something called the convention. So we learn that, that atomics is a serious thing. Uh, it's almost like saying like even to attack us with nuclear weapons, you know, like to, to use a, today's, a today example, this country, they wouldn't punish them with nukes, but they might create a trade embargo. They might blockade. They might do attacks on high valley targets with uh, some sort of special forces. They might, you know, but not openly declaring nuclear war on them, right? <laughs> right. But but all of the other horrible shit, yes, that's probably going to happen because because the money comes first. Absolutely. And dude, okay, this leads to one of my this favorite parts of, of this chapter where, where Paul starts to wonder, well, why, why are we doing this? Why are we walking into what we seem to know is already a trap? 
And the Duke frowns at him, saying, knowing where the trap is, that's the first step in evading it. This is like single combat, son, only on a larger scale, a feint within a feint within a feint, seemingly mm. without end. The task is to unravel it, knowing that the Harkonnen stockpile melange. We ask another question. Who else is stockpiling? That's the list of our enemies. I yes. just love how he walks Paul through that, of like, you want to start, you, you, you see the trap now, well, now let's start to unfold the shape of this trap and know what we're getting into instead of acting rashly. I, I love this contrast and comparison between Paul and Leto to see future events unfolding with a different set of skills, right? Paul is gifted with something. Leto has worked his tail off to see these things tactically. He's strategic. Paul right. is young, but he has Benny Jesuit training. So he sees, he gets inclinations in a very different way. It, it, it's it, it's you know it's like saying uh, Han Solo sees something. Uh, Han, the, the truth is revealed to Han Solo because of his experience. The truth is revealed to Luke Skywalker because of the Force. Right? <laughs> it, it's right. this it's this real interesting setup between these two guys that I like, and I just love the inference here, which is okay. Whoever else is stockpiling, that's a list of our enemies. You would almost think, well, what about a house that's hoarding it on the side just because they're nervous? But I think stockpiling is mean to present that they have wind of something going to go down because they are in league with the Harkonnen. I think that's what we're supposed to believe here. I agree. Yeah, I think that's what it's really implied. Right. And Paul gets a little nervous here. He swallows in a dry throat when... The Padishah Emperor comes up. The beloved Padishah Emperor, Leto, says quite sarcastically. And Paul is like, wait a minute. Couldn't the, couldn't the land shroud expose him, right? I mean, what, what do you mean? Like, that's the ultimate fear for Paul. And this, because he, he says it in a throat suddenly dry. There's fear here. Imagine being told the most powerful person in the known universe is not on your side, actually. He, you can oh, right. you cannot appeal to him for Harkonnen treachery, right? Right, absolutely. And he even talks about here, like what what would be the point of bringing it to the emperor? The emperor would deny it. It would mm-hmm. create a great cloud of confusion, and then we'd also risk moving the. You know, I, I love this line where he says, "Now we see the knife, Paul. Who knows where it might be shifted mm. next?" And that's such a cool bit of like tactician thinking. Of we need to hold on to what we know because that actually does. Give us room to move. We, we understand where we're at. Our enemy doesn't know how much we know yet. I love it. I love that. That's classic counterintelligence, right? Uh, I've seen this done well in lots of different movies. And, uh, and it's neat. You know, I, I, there's this great moment in Deep Space Nine where uh, Cisco has to get information to the Cardassians, but he has to do it in a way that is within the rules, so he goes to get fitted for a new suit and the tailor is a civilian Cardassian and he just starts openly talking about something, playing dumb, <laughs> knowing that he's going to run back and tell the Cardassians, right? <laughs> I, 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 or, or it's that moment in a movie, you know, imagine you're watching a spy movie and you realize your house is bugged. So you start feeding the listening people disinformation. Right, right, right. You don't freak out and start screaming. There's bugs. Everything's right. bugged. <laughs> right. You say, yeah, the drops at three a.m. on Tuesday, but really it's at noon on Monday, and you and you start throwing them off. That's I, I love. I love that kind of uh, again 
uh, the, the, the deception and the tactical stuff and the strategy stuff in this book is so interesting to me. I just love this idea. Like, oh, why would we let them know we know? Let's make them think that their A plan is the plan and we will react when the time is right and not a second earlier. Right, right. I love that. Because now that they know an attack is coming, coming, they can prepare for it in ways that won't be noticed by the people who are attacking them, the Harkonnen. And we get into this great stuff here where he, we learn that the Sardukar uh, are probably going to be disguised in Harkonnen livery, which is livery. I'm saying it wrong. Yeah, livery. <laughs> livery. Um, Harkonnen livery. And I always say that wrong. Some, some words I just say wrong. It's so weird. But um, in that is a scary proposition. And that is literally what Piter was saying when he was talking to Baron Vladimir Harkonnen and teaching Fade. We, like, this is, it, it's so, this shows you how much history there is between the Harkonnen and the Atreides to where, to where Leto actually suspects this from the Baron Harkonnen. He right, suspects right. Ex- exactly what he's doing. And he already has like a feel for his patterns. Like, yeah, yeah, this is the way he thinks. This is the way he goes. Right. And that's when they get into this whole discussion about Seleucus Secundus. Imagine the type of people that come from this very harsh world. That's precisely where these people come from. And they start to make the connection. Well, Arrakis is, is brutal. So the Fremen are probably tough. We don't think the Fremen are fans of the Harkonnen. Maybe we can have our own Sardukar is kind of how they discuss it. Right. Right. I love that. Yeah, this is so this is this is what I, I love about this book's take on culture and conditions mm. and environment like shaping people. And it has it, it's got such an over like an eye, eye like omnipresent eye level overview of civilization. And like this is how entire cultures start to congeal and form into something. And th- them pointing out here, I think it's such a great line when they're talking about Seleucus Secundus, the planet they've come from. Yes. Uh, the Sardaukar. He says, undoubtedly, but if you were going to raise tough, strong, ferocious men, what environmental conditions would you impose on them? And that, to me, is awesome because we already start to under, we already have learned a decent amount, a small amount about the Fremen so far, that they come from this horrible, you know, ridiculously inhospitable planet. And it's a very similar sort of condition as yes. the, the, the highest order of troops in the universe, the, the Imperial Sardaukar. But this starts to to point out that the Fremen have grown on this equally inhospitable place and are equal, equally capable of dealing with it. And you have this like quiet, hidden majority of powerful, possibly powerful soldiers. Yes. And, and I love how, how Leto leads Paul to this. So I like that we're seeing this dialogue is not just to reveal plots and information to tell us about Leto. It's also to show us how Paul is developing, how, how he's becoming a man. It's also to show us how Ladle goes about sort of leading Paul to answers, seeing if he can get them, and when he doesn't, he gives him the correct answer. So I like that Paul gets some right, and then he needs to be led to others that he his dad helps him get right. It's just very realistic dialogue between what I would imagine father and son would be in this situation. Um, based on the relationship that we know of. Because he says, you know, consider Arrakis. It's horrible outside of the towns. And Paul just goes, the Fremen, aha, yes. So he makes the connection between the Sardaukar and the Fremen because of where they come from. Right. Right. But what Paul doesn't do is he doesn't make the connection between the Harkonnens 
in the Fremen because he's like, well, the Harkonnens know about them, so they're going to know. And that's when Lando goes, ha, they sneered at the Fremen, hunted them for sport, never even bothered trying to count them. We know the Harkonnen policy with planetary populations spend as little as possible to maintain them. So this is something, this is an oversight by the Harkonnen. It's, a, it's one by Paul, just in his learning, that dad tells him about. He gets the Fremen connection, but not this one. And I like that because he shouldn't get all the answers yet, right? It shows that Paul still has to grow. And I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Like he, I love that you're like you're saying. Like he walks him kind of up to the edge of of these questions and allows him to connect the answer. Yes, and this is what we learn that you know Duncan the Moral is trying to make inroads with the Fremen and uh, and doing what he can't. And this, of course, brings up a conversation about Gurney because they start talking about Gurney the Valorous, Duncan the Moral, and how they're well named. The Duke says because that's what Paul refers to them as. In, in, the, in the conversation sort of shifts here. And I love this because I love when, <laughs> I love when Gurney comes up and they start talking about his training and how it went. And, 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 and Paul says, Gurney says there's no artistry in killing with a tip that it should be done with the edge. And the Duke's like, he's a romantic. It doesn't matter tip or edge. You kill if you have to kill. Like don't, right, don't fall, pr- don't fall prey to the artistry in which Gurney conducts his business. He's an artist. He's a romantic. You, right. in, in, in your, and this is your son. And you're like, it, it's, it's, almost, it's almost like the, uh, you know, don't forget the frill and the flare. Be effective yes. and win. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I love that. I'd love, that this me, is that every can... conversation Bill Belichick ever had with his players. <laughs> forget the flare, get the job done. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's no, this is not about twirlies and flips. Let's go. Get it done. <laughs> oh, fuck. But no, I love that. I mean, it's such a character moment for, for Leto because also what, what I love in that moment is this contradiction of, of him thinking the idea of his son having to kill disturbs him. Like sure. he's very bothered by that. Like his teenage son is having to think about it. And in that moment gives that answer of you do it however you can. Like fuck the artistry. Yes. You know, survive basically is what he's saying. Yeah. Uh, I love when they start talking about the Highliners because they're talking about how they're going to go off-world and how it's this massive hole that tucks our frigates and transporters into it. <clears throat> and we're just a tiny part of this small manifest because we know they're leaving Kaladin. They're going to Arrakis. That's why Dad's here. That's why this conversation is happening. And it gets into the logistics of that, of that process. And what I love about this, Matt, is we, don't ever, we never kind of see this in, uh, in anything. We see the sheer size of a Star Destroyer, but I love how he says there, there could be Harkonnen, there's going to be Harkonnen ships on this thing, and we'll yeah. never see each other. That we have nothing really, to fear because, right. because of the rules of space travel in this universe. That the, the, they, the guild has Can't the, leave your the ship. utter... <laughs> right, right. But the guild has such an utter monopoly on space travel. Everyone has to use it, and it's like this equalizer of like, well, they're, you're not going to have conflicts on board a Highliner because you're going to lose your privileges to travel space, and nobody's going to risk that. So yeah, you could be right next to your sworn enemy, all of your ships just huddled together, and that's how it is. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing in this world that if you commit a crime against the guild, you're done. You're done. You're, like done. you're fucked. I mean, there's nothing travel. worse. There's nothing worse. Right, Other than absolutely. openly attacking the emperor, I guess. But I guess if you had the power to do it and you did it, then great. But still, the guild, man, you can't mess with the guild because nobody understands how they operate. 
Right, right. I love that. that even just the, the, the movement of ships in this universe is mysterious. and It's not just knowledge everybody has. And what I like about it, and I love, you know me, I love Star Wars, but you see Star Wars or you see something like Star Trek, although this, this happens rarely in Star Trek. It's more of a Star Wars thing to show the massiveness of, say, an Imperial Star Destroyer or a Super Star Destroyer compared to the size of one of the hero ships, right? Right, right. And the scale is just out of whack. And that, and that makes you go, wow, that's impressive. But you never quite, outside of that scale comparison, you never quite get a sense for what it must be like inside one of these ships. Because we're always in corridors. We always get to the bridge right away. We never quite feel the scale and size of the interior of one of these ships because we don't quite see life in the ship, right? Battlestar Galactica does, does a good job of this because we see they live here. Like there's families and people that never meet. That's interesting. Right. Sometimes we feel, or I feel, that Star Destroyers seem a little small on the inside compared to what we see on the outside. And this does such a good job of highlighting scale without talking about literal dimensions by just saying, we'll never see them. We can't get off. This thing holds our ships. Well, our ships go in their ship. That's crazy. Exactly. You know, that's insane. <laughs> All of our frigates and transports, their whole fleet just gets stuffed in here and it's, it's got room to spare. Right. Uh, great reveal for Paul here. Talk to me about him learning about Mentat capabilities. Yes, I love... To me, if one, it's it's a great reveal, but there was also a small part of me that was like, damn, dude, you really didn't put that together earlier? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. your mother has been training you, your mother has been honing your your senses, but I love I love the the way it's introduced, um, where, where he says, how it agrees, son, it is true that you could be a Mentat. And he goes, but I thought Mentat training had to start during infancy, and the subject couldn't be told because it might inhibit the early... And then he broke off all his past circumstances coming to focus in one flashing computation. Yep. I see. Like, what a great description of that because mm-hmm. of one flashing computation, what a Mintat-sounding way of understanding. Absolutely. Computation like couldn't be more perfect of a word. It's great. It's great. And the, the, the idea that all of his training that he just took as that's the way his mother is and that's the way we all are taught and learn, he starts to realize that, no, that is a specific order of training that you've been receiving and now you know what that training could lead you to because also what i think find what i find so cool about this is that it's not this moment of the father going see son you've been trained to be a mentat it's your destiny now go do it he's like no you you get to choose like you choose whether you want to continue on to this this training the person you know the way that the mentat training works after a certain point it needs to be revealed that they have been in training and then they can choose whether they want to go on further with that training and really become a full-fledged Mintat, or if they want to go another direction and, and not go any further. And Paul chooses pretty much immediately that he wants to keep going. He wants to train on to be a Mintat. Yeah. It's funny. I'm thinking back. May, I wonder if Paul was thrown off because his mom is a Bene Gesserit, and maybe he assumed that was that training a little bit, which I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was so sort of sure. a hybrid, right? But but it does it does it does make you wonder about do 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 young noble kids wonder if they're being trained as a mentat or is that fact that it is a kind of a hidden thing kept largely secret until the moment and then is it sort of I wonder if in the lore it's forbidden for Paul to sort of reveal that that's the case like is it do you, do you see what I mean because mm, Paul sort of. in other words Paul had no inkling that mentat training was done secretly like that 
Right, right. Right. He only knew that it was something that was done early, but not secretive, which is interesting for a boy 15 in a noble family, which means they must keep that very quiet. Yeah. So yeah. children don't suspect, I guess. Because, yeah, because that could inhibit the training, being aware of it. Right. Absolutely. It's cool. <laughs> and then also Paul realizes at the very close of this chapter that perhaps being a mintat is this is his terrible purpose. This mm. purpose, this feeling of purpose that haunts him that he's already you know, feeling forced into. And, and it closes with him with it, the thought of, but even as he focused on this thought, his new awareness denied it. <laughs> so that, that new awareness, that feeling of terrible purpose that makes him see and feel things differently, that new awareness itself is basically being like, nah, it's not that you're a mintat. <laughs> it's not right. that. Which, which shows you that it might even supplant mintat training in terms of the order of power. I guess is an right. easy way to say it. But yeah, he decided with no hesitation, Matt. He was in. I mean, in this world, it seems like being a mintad is a pretty high order of a thing to do. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. You are pretty damn well respected. And I, I also didn't fully realize until this chapter that kind of anyone can be a mintad. Now, not, not in the sense of anybody just can decide to be a mintad, but that any type of person, like it doesn't, you know, a Benny Gesserit could be a mintad. Uh, a, a Duke can be a mintad. A soldier can be a mintad. Like anybody... There are so many different things Mintats can do, but it you know, just depends on who is capable of being a Mintat at all. Absolutely. I'm sure there's a lot of flunkies. <laughs> or or Mintat, Mintat trim. <laughs> you know what I bet happens? I bet, I bet there comes a point in an adolescent's training where they just abandon it, and the, infant, and the, and the adolescent is never the wiser. Well, because be the true. person evaluating them is like, they're not cut out for it. Right, they just cease it. Like a year ago, if, if, you know, if Paul got a, a quiz and he's like, oh, I don't know the triangle. And I'm like, no, it's a score, you dummy. And then his dad's like, never mind, cancel the training. He can't do it. You know? He's a fucking mint he's a, he's a ding dong. Forget it. Oh, well. <laughs> he'll just be a regular Duke instead of a mentat Duke. A formidable indeed mentat mm, Duke. Indeed. Awesome. Well, off we go to chapter seven, Matthew. Yes, sir. Would you like to read this one? Why not? Why not? I say. With the Lady Jessica and Arrakis, the Bene Gesserit system of sowing implant legends through the Missionaria Protectiva came to its full fruition. The wisdom of seeding the known universe with a prophecy pattern of the notorious... Sorry. With a prophecy pattern for the protection of Bene Gesserit personnel has long been appreciated. But never have we seen a condition et extremis with more ideal mating of person and preparation. The prophetic legends had taken on Arrakis, even to the extent of adopted labels, including Reverend Mother, Canto, and Respondu, and most of the Sharia Panoplia Propheticus. And it is generally accepted now that the Lady Jessica's latent abilities were grossly underestimated. From Analysis, the Arakeen Crisis by the Princess Irulan. Private Circulation, Bene Gesserit File Number AR 801, sorry, 810 in case you guys want to look that up. <laughs> You're going to have to repeat that, sir. I need to find your order number. Um, that's AR 810 <laughs> So here we go. Uh, this is, this sort of starts with Jessica, they're, they're, they're at Arrakis. They're at the Arakeen Great Hall. 
All their stuff is there. They've offloaded the Highliners. They're in the process of it's move-in day, Matthew. Dude, and can we say I, I found it? I, I, I read this chapter uh, a while back and reread it again, you know, recent. And I find it very interesting that this is the chapter where our, all of our main characters finally arrive on Arrakis, and there is no scene of their arrival. There's no view of Arrakis <laughs> as they ride in. They're just there, and they're just kind of in the middle of of settling in. I find that really interesting. It's such mm. a like it doesn't, in a sense, their arrival doesn't matter. It's more about how they are begin to adapt. It's it is interesting because it it, it almost lends credence to the prior chapter's discussion of the guild highliners and how you can't even leave your ship and you're in a ship. You're not going to see anything. <laughs> that, that, there's no there's no cool sci-fi approach on the planet. You don't even see it. You're in your ship. In, you're in a ship. In a ship. And then it, <laughs> and then when that ship touches down. Uh, or if I don't know if Highliners land, I don't remember. But when you get to the planet, you're there, and now we'll have to reveal the planet as we go. It's pretty neat. I dig it. I super dig it. But Jessica is alone, you know, kind of uh, preparing the the dining hall, the great dining hall mm. with massive. Uh, I love that this this little moment of these massive beams, the cross beams in the ceiling that had to have been shipped here at monstrous cost because there's not a damn tree on this planet. Mm, absolutely. She has a lot of thoughts like this. She's thinking about, you know, the government mansions in the days of old before the Harkonnen and the new megalopolis of Carthag. Uh, she's thinking about architecture, but this sort of just gets her down to Jessica wondering what compulsion had brought her to uncover these two things first, a bullhead in a painting. So she's going through everything. She marvels and is quizzical about the architecture, as you pointed out. And then she comes upon two th- items to unpack. You know, it's not socks. It's not underwear. It's a <laughs> giant bullhead and a painting of Duke Leto's father. We're going to come to learn. The old Duke. The old Duke. And I love, to me, you know, I, I remember wondering about, like, what is the... What is the significance of her finding those two things? For one, I, I do feel like there's a bit of her feeling haunted by by the old duke and and being pulled into this you know, this family with so many you know dangerous things that they're facing. But also the fact that the old duke was killed by this bull that she is she is holding the very mm. thing that killed her husband's father. It's just such an omnipotent like symbol, or not an omnipotent. Uh, uh, an ominous symbol. Ominous symbol, indeed. I, I like this because I, I was I read this chapter and I was really thinking about Jessica in this moment because I thought she is very bothered by this to the point where we're going to learn later in the chapter she doesn't even want it in the dining hall or, or, or something like that. And he's like, are you crazy? Right? <laughs> Leto right. is not having that. But it made me go, wow, what what... Why is she so bothered by this particular thing? And you're right. It's the head of the, it's the, head of the beast that killed the man in the painting. Right? right? So there's that. But, but you know what I started to think? I wonder if she's thinking about it because it's such a, it has dried blood on it, as we're going to learn. But this, this, it, it's almost this visceral representation of his death and I wonder if it makes her consider this inevitability of Leto's demise. Exactly. Yeah. Right? No, I totally agree. I think it is. It's a an, a symbol of oncoming death, and like he come, you know, the, everything prior to his line is already gone. Yeah. Good call. Um, so I, I I like this. There's a couple things in here. 
uh, because when she does uncover it, she has this terrible fear or, or a lack of confidence when she sees the items. She, it reminds her of when she was taken by the Duke, sort of purchased, I guess is the way they say it, as she's a concubine. And in the way it provokes these really insecure feelings in her. And then it continues with when she meets Leto, you know, seeing him in his, you know, hawk encrusted uniform. And, and then this sudden fear of him tightened her breast, it says. He had become such a savage, driving person since the decision to bow to the Emperor's command. And I love this because I love this entire exchange here, right? I like this whole, this whole piece. And he says, it's a dirty, dusty garrison town, but we'll change that. These are public rooms for state occasions. I just glance at some of the family apartments in the South Wing. They're much nicer. He wants her to be comfortable. He does care about her. That's what we learn here. Right? Oh yeah, no. He, you really get a sense for how much he loves her in this chapter. That he's he believes that it was her that brought regal beauty back into the Atreides line. He great, was glad that line. Paul favored her. Absolutely. He, and there, I, I do find it interesting, and it's something that starts to get alluded to a little more in this chapter and then the next ones about the fact that she is not married to the Duke. Yes, um, that that she remains a concubine, and I think that that is kind of the center of a lot of her sensitive feelings, even though she kind of logically understands why. Right. Yeah. I, I, I often thought about that. It, this came up in our last discussion, but just this idea that she is considered quite reverent, so to speak, right? She's not, this is not a shameful position to be in. Oh, She's no, treated by, not. right. That that's, that's what's, that's what's cool about you hear the word concubine and like, Oh, that's like your side piece, right? <laughs> But, <laughs> that's some but, ladies that just hang around, you know. Is she a lady of the night? But no, we we understand that this is a, this is a matter of importance, and and it sounds like perhaps marriage is even higher in importance. But but I guess we learn that much like it was in medieval Europe, or or anywhere where there's more than one wife, a lot of times there's alliances at, at stake here, right? Right. Right. Or at least that, that, the potential to think there could be an alliance. Exactly. Which is, in a lot of ways, the same thing at the end of the day. Sure. The fact that there is a, the door still seems open allows for political alliances to at least be talked about and, and used for leverage. Yes, put yourself in the position of, of this. If you are a house that has sort of medium to lower relations with the Atreides yet you know that you have a suitable person that could marry the Duke and really cement an alliance through marriage, you might take that or at least not endanger your relationship to possibly take that if the door is, as you said, open. Whereas if they were 100% married, maybe you would be quicker to sour on that since you know there is no shot at alliance through marriage. And if you're the Duke, you see it from the perspective of, well, you can entertain the idea for for people's sake in order to start a conversation with them, to in order sure. to you know begin diplomacy. Like it might begin with the possibility of, oh yeah, you have an, uh, an heir who could marry me, and that is the is the first thing they talk about. But they lead into to more diplomatic relations, <laughs> right? They have this. You tease them. You tease it. Yeah, you hold yeah. it over their head. Absolutely. It's all politics, <laughs> right? It's court intrigue. That's a better way to say it. Certainly more interesting. But, you know, they have this little spat. She's like, oh, God. And, we have to, and he basically says, I indulge you shamefully in most things, not in this. <laughs> and he's very clear. She, she pushes back and he says, no. 
and she knows she could probably change his mind with her Benny Jesuit ways, but decides not to. And I like that. I like that respect. It, it would be, right. a, it, it takes a lot of responsibility to know that she has this power, yet also wants this real person. Because if he becomes a puppet, then how fun is that? That's an amazing amount of restraint for a character in this situation. Totally. I actually love the way it's, it's set up. You know, she, she knew she could use trickery to persuade, but open argument was useless. Still, she had to try, even if the gesture served only to remind herself that she would not trick him. Like, I love that because like, like you were saying, it's a matter of respect. She knows she can trick him using some of her Bene Gesserit techniques, but she <laughs> loves, loves him too much to do that. She chooses to not trick him and she goes back to just argument because she still wants to to lay out how much she does not like this <laughs> right and, and we've sort of speculated as to why but he was like no we're gonna put it where it has always been and that's that yeah so this leads us to learning about um the shout out mapes right dude this okay so this whole piece in this chapter and even the heading of this chapter and you already know this but this is some of my absolute favorite shit so far in this book like great. i am fascinated by the, the by the bene Gesserit missionaria protectiva i think it's one of the most interesting concepts that me i can too. even uh, that have ever come across in sci-fi or fantasy just as, let me, let's just talk about the missionaria protectiva for a moment because in this moment we find out that the shout out mapes is a fremen and she was the old head housekeeper i believe right and yes. she she chooses to stay on, and we find out that she chooses to stay on only because she learns that the lady of the house is a Bene Gesserit. That's mm. what keeps shut out mapes around. Um, and this is when we start to learn about what the missionary protectiva is in practice. And we watch, like, we'll go through it, of course, but like the way that Jessica starts to almost push, push forward, uh, almost aggressively on shut out mapes about who she is and what she knows in order to toss out these signals, it's almost like her probing. It's her probing to be like, how much do you know? How much has the missionary protectiva gotten to you and to your people? Because the whole idea of the missionary protectiva is to basically start cultures, like dropping, you know, like I think I can't find the spot where she says it, but there's a, a moment where Jessica is even imagining like many hundreds of years ago, some, some Bene Gesserit, you know, priestess was here on this planet before and started giving out these ideas, these legends, telling people about prophecies and getting even just Bene Gesserit vernacular to them so that hundreds of years later, even uh, after these ideas have taken hold and become a real part of their culture and their religion and the way they live, that another Bene Gesserit could come figure out how much of this they know and use it to their advantage to be essentially to, to, to be like, I am here fulfilling these prophecies you believe in yes, and, and protect them from these people. Like that is just fascinating to me. The foresight is mind boggling. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. It has a, it has a missionary sort of feel to it, but a little bit yes. more dark, a little bit more manipulative and controlling. But yes, <laughs> which the missionaries also did do some shit like that in the past. <laughs> sure, sure. All, all in the name of what they believed is the truth. That's the difference, right? I'm not saying right. all of them, but I'm sure most of them. Are like, no, no, this is very important. Christ is important. Like, you should listen. Whereas they're like, what do we want to make up here? <laughs> like, they call it the black like, love- arm of superstition, right? I believe is a, is how it's described at some point. But the missionario protectiva is really neat. It's just. It's as you were saying, we sow the seeds 
to get these primitive cultures to be open for us to take advantage of them if necessary. And, uh, and we may show up at the correct times in the order of these prophecies to really assert our dominance. These panoplia propheticus, right? These myths and such. It's, it's, right. um, it, they describe it in Wikipedia as like religious engineering. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, that's such a good way of putting it. Right? Yeah. It's neat, but it's, it's, it's a complete way to exploit them. It's, it's done to control them, to prepare them for whatever they've done in this particular situation. But like you said, I just love the way, I love the way she probes to see what's going on in this. This starts with Jessica almost being confused because later was like, they're convinced she wants to serve specifically that she wants to serve you. And Jessica's like, me? What? <laughs> what do you mean me? The Fremen have learned your Benny Gesserit. And that's when she goes on this whole thought process of the Missionaria Protectiva. And we go, aha. So we understand, as Jessica is a Bene Gesserit, that she's going to be able to take advantage of this black arm of superstition and bend it to a way that's advantageous to her. And what the beauty of this is it's done so, so well that they are compelled to seek her out, right? She doesn't even have to like, Go twist arms. Uh, yes, there is some contention in this face-to-face meeting. Uh, I love this moment with Shout Out because of just the conflict of culture, the way they behave towards each other, the way she, the way the way she is, in the way the, the way Shout Out is, in the way Jessica is. They're different people, but we see Jessica's like answers and training kicking in to avoid a disastrous conversation with this woman. It's really interesting. I mean, Absolutely. imagine if the Jedi were missionaries. <laughs> imagine I mean, in a weird Jedi, way they kind of were forced missionaries. It's true, but imagine if that if the goal was like like imagine if imagine if Qui Gon and Ben went down to that planet and just started taking advantage of superstition that they that was implanted for them to to utilize to their advantage. Right? It'd be. Uh, I, I could see something like the missionary protectiva being done by the Sith. That'd be very interesting, right? Like right. engineering right. religion to worship them as gods on a planet somewhere. <laughs> An even darker version of it, yeah. Mm. But uh, I like this. And it's funny because it, right in the beginning of this conversation, she says, oh, does this mean Duncan was successful? It's almost a throwaway because she's almost... It, 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 I wonder if part of her is trying to remove not let the Duke wonder himself about this. It's almost like she's saying, yeah, I guess, I guess Duncan did his work because it's yes, not the Benny Jesuit. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. Because that they he even goes on to say that, uh, that the, the Fremen have agreed at least to stop raiding our outlying villages during a truce period. And that again, also, like you said, kind of seems like a throwaway moment, but I think way more so than any Duncan Idaho, it is the fact that they learned there's a Benny Desert among these people that made them want to pause and right. say, okay, maybe we won't attack you outright. Maybe we should, uh, maybe, maybe us Fremen should observe these new rulers for a little while. Mm, yeah. Like, I think that's got far more to do with them ceasing their attacks. Absolutely. Uh, this conversation continues a bit. They they talk about her and what she'll look like, et, et cetera. But there's this great moment where Duke later says, you must teach me someday how to do that. The way you thrust your worries aside and turn to practical matters. It must be a Benny Jesuit thing to which she replies, it's a female thing. <laughs> and he smiles. And I like this. This is it's moment of levity between these two because yeah. we should talk about sort of the character of this meeting. 
we, we, I think Frank Herbert does a good job of making us feel this underlying, um, uh, fondness for one another that has really got this wall of formality between them. Yes. In, in, totally. in, in, in it's, in it's, in it's nice. You feel this, you don't want to say it's unrequited. I mean, they, they clearly do love each other and they are allowed to love each other, but in these public moments where we see them interacting, we know that there is this formality between them. Yeah. And that, that's one of the most interesting times to, to drop in the character's thoughts too, is when they, when we can finally hear them saying in their heads, what they wish they could say in, in between one another out loud, that they just kind of can't, that it's not appropriate to, it's not a, the time for, um, like I love the moment when, when she still wants to try and, and persuade him to, to change, you know, just to change where I think the painting goes. Um, but she knows he's not going to be persuaded and she starts to ask and then breaks off and then instead says, uh, what, what time will you be expecting dinner? And then he thinks in his own mind, the Duke, that's not what she was going yes. to say. Yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, my, uh, my Jessica would that we were somewhere else, anywhere away from this terrible place alone. The two of us without a care. Indeed. I love that. Yeah, yeah. They, they, he absolutely still desires her. Wants to wants her to be safe. And and he and he and he doesn't pr- he doesn't push her on that. That's respectful. He's like, just she changed her mind. Just let her change her mind. You don't have to push her as to why. Like right. he 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 strike. He's he's a very commanding man who has a lot of control. Yet he relents here and he just lets her have that. That's not what you were going to ask moment. But I'm not even going to push it. It's nice. Yeah. It's like a. There's there's a respect level there. Just let people change their mind sometimes and leave them alone. It's okay. You don't have <laughs> to be fine. so neurotic that you have to know everything, right? I like that. It shows a level of of, of discipline and respect. Yeah, absolutely. We understand that there's going to be some spice hunters leaving the planet, and uh, he want and he originally was going to have Hawat take care of it, but he says he's going to go do it because Hawat's been worked to the bone, and um, and I like that because that's that's a important important plot point that will come back because one thing we have to remember that amongst all of these conversations is the hustle and bustle of, uh, you know, uh, the Arakeen city here. Yeah. That's and a good that's, way of putting it, that they are literally in the middle of changing the entire, it's like essentially like an administration changing, yes. you know, changing over. And yes. they're right in the middle of it with some of the former people are still in the middle of leaving and they need these spice hunters because these are trained, experienced guys who are used to working in the Arakeen deserts, and they don't have a lot of people who know that. Right. This is our this is our this is our first tip on something called the the planetologist or the judge of change, and and apparently he's this powerful man, and he's allowing them to leave. We're going to learn that, of course, he reports to the emperor. Yes, Kynes. Pardo, Kynes. But uh, as you said, uh, you, you, they, they sort of part ways and we get to Jessica whirling. She stared down at a knobby, gray-haired woman in a shapeless sack dress of bondsman brown. The woman looked as wrinkled and desiccated as any member of the mob that had greeted them along the way from the landing field that morning. Every native she had seen on this planet, Jessica thought, looked prune dry and undernourished, yet... Leto had said they were strong and vital, and there were the eyes, of course, that wash of deepest, darkest blue without any white, secretive, mysterious. Jessica forced herself not to stare. Yeah. And that's when she says, I am called the shout-out mapes. And here <laughs> we go. What a conversation. Oh, it's so good. Boy, the <laughs> shout-out is so fucking 
Ah, I love her. <laughs> one of my favorite characters so far, just because she is our first Fremen. She's that so we mysterious get to too. And she it, it purposefully mysterious. Mm-hmm. Like she is holding a lot back. And I love that. Yeah. <clears throat> but, but again, Jessica's entry point here where, where she starts to really probe at, you know, what does, what not only what does shout out know, but what do the Fremen know here of, of the ideas that have been planted from the missionary. Like it's almost like Jessica probing to see how much of it has taken, you know, how much of it it really applies here. And she doesn't want to overplay her hand and say too much and delve into things that they don't know. She wants to work with what they already know and believe and figure out how she can fit into their, their ideas and their legends. Um, And she says, you know, I recognize your title of shout out. I recognize the word. It's Hmm. a very ancient word. And just by saying that, Mapes is already intrigued enough to ask, so you know the ancient tongues then? And that's when we get into this conversation a little bit about language and and eventually leading us to the meaning of the knife. Yes, and right before the meaning of the life, knife, I love this moment where they're talking about, where they're, they're going through, I know the dark things in the ways of the great mother. And when she goes through the languages, there's this moment where Mapes takes a step back, poised to flee. <laughs> I love that because I love that we see the Missionaria Protectiva's work coming to fruition right here, which is right. just this idea like, how what, am I standing before a prophet? Am I standing before an angel? That should, yeah, um, I, think, I think the way she uh, goes at goes out, I, I think Michette out sees her as, as possibly one of the parts of the prophecy now exactly. coming true, that she is standing before her. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Imagine standing in the presence of uh, Gabriel <laughs> or, or maybe thinking you are, you might flee. And she's concerned like, oh my God, what? And she has to steal herself. Yeah. <laughs> and she says, you know, uh, you have done violence and you'll do more. I know many things. And that's when Rape says, I meant no offense. You speak of the legend and seek answers, Jessica said. Beware the answers you may find. I know you came prepared for violence with a weapon in your bodice. <gasps> my lady, I... And that's when she, we have this standoff. I like, I like that shout out is, is written in a way to indicate to us that if Jessica is a fraud, she's dead meat right here, right now with no fear from shout out. Yeah. Groups, right. Totally. That's totally. super interesting because it shows this level of devotion to the Panoplia Propheticus, these, these superstitions that have been laid out before them. Absolutely. So <laughs> it's, it's a very thin line. These Benny Jesuit walk, isn't it? It's a dangerous line, but they put in a lot of, you know, pre-work, <laughs> a lot of For setup sure. on this. They've earned it. it but no, it, it, it even shut out goes on to say the weapon was sent as a gift to you should you prove to be the one. And immediately Jessica replies, and as the means of my death, should I prove otherwise? <laughs> so gangster. <laughs> like, I love that. She, she finishes that thought that she wasn't going to say out loud of like, and I know what the alternative to that is. Yeah. What you're right. You're here for. And uh, she pulls out what's described as a black handle with deep finger ridges protruding from it. She took sheath in one hand and handle in the other, withdrew a milk white blade. The blade seemed to shine and glitter with a light of its own. It was double edged like a kinjal, and the blade was perhaps 20 centimeters long. Do you know what this is, my lady? Mapes asks. It could be only one thing Jessica knew the fabled Chris knife of Arrakis. The blade that had never been taken off the planet and was known only by rumor and wild gossip. <laughs> so rad. Uh, and this is when she, she shut out, tests her here by mm. saying, you know, say the name not lightly, the Chris knife, 
do you know its meaning? <laughs> and this is where Jessica realizes, I have to think of this answer quickly because this is her test. And delay is as dangerous as the wrong answer. Indeed. But I love how she starts to go through, you know, she goes back into language. She goes, well, you know, what could it be? It, she's called the shout out in Chakobsa tongue. Knife, that's death maker in Chakobsa. Like she's using the yeah. clues of, of, of realizing, okay, shout out is a Chakobsa word. I know Chakobsa. What is knife in Chakobsa? It's a death maker. Like she starts just going down this path and all she has to say, it's a maker and then shout out, Knife's <laughs> wailed. A sound of both grief and elation. Yeah. I I, I, what I love about this, Matt, is so often we are dealing in a visual medium at LSG Media, right? <laughs> True. <laughs> so we never get to watch a character consider how to answer what could be a life-threatening question and what they're thinking in that moment. We just know they're thinking. We can right. speculate as to what they're thinking. If the filmmaker does a good job of conveying that to us, that's great. But this is one of the cool things about discussing a book, which is, of course, our first time doing so. And this idea of getting into thought processes. Right, right. And understanding that she is in a, a place of danger, uh, but she is, again, clinging to the missionary protective, going back to its basis, its basis of words and language. And, you know, she doesn't even have to say it's a death maker. She says it's a maker. And that's when, right. you know, at, at, when she reacts so strongly, she knows she got it right. Absolutely. There's this great moment where Jessica's like, what, you didn't think I would know? And Mapes has this great line where she says, my lady, when one has lived with prophecy for so long, the moment of revelation is a shock. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, that was sort of the more blunt point I was trying to make by saying, imagine standing before an angel or something and, and being like, oh my, oh my God. First of all, whoops, can't say that. But no, right? <laughs> imagine that moment of, uh, of you, like, shout out Mapes is not a young woman. Her whole life your whole yes. life, and now you're standing in the presence, in the flesh of something, some sort of prophetic thing. Totally. And dude, I also wanted to point this out too. I thought it was really funny uh, when they first start, you know, when Mapes is, is seeing her and still taking in that she knows some of her languages, and Mapes nods saying, just as the legend says, and Jessica wondered, why do I play out this shame? I know, I know, that's <laughs> but the, great. <laughs> but the Bene Gesserit ways were devious and compelling. And I love how the, the, the further along she gets in this conversation with Shout Out, the more, the more she dedicates her, like commits to this act of, okay, I have to perform my part and play it out the way that they would see me fitting into this legend because that's what I need to do now. And she even says after she's like trying, you, you hear the thoughts in Jessica's head where she's like, the key word was maker, maker, maker. Like, what is it? What, what, why is it that? But then when she, when Mapes is holding the knife, Jessica says, did you think that I knowing the mysterious <laughs> mysteries of the great mother would not know the maker as in her head? She's like, what the fuck's the maker? <laughs> I love that. It's so, so double-sided, but it's perfect. I also love this idea, like at that point, she knows she's probably safe, but, but I love your thought process and I'm going to, and I'm, I'm going to riff on it a little. Just imagine Jessica's position. Imagine being like, oh God, why do I play this sham ho-hum? And then it becomes, holy shit, I need to answer this right. Yeah. Like, yes. It, or she'll it, kill it, me. <laughs> it, it quickly goes from, oh, I'm just sort of play acting on this entire horseshit that's been made up. Although that's going to become interesting as the story progresses, or at least embellished, or at least this, this myth, this you know, uh, this superstition that's been maintained for so long, and now I'm an active part in that superstition. It's almost like they're finally called my card. It's my part in the movie to come out, 
And then you realize, oh, this shit's real. She's going to plunge a Chris knife into my chest if I'm not careful. Right. She's never had to engage with the the the, yes. the putting on of the Missionaria Protectiva before. She's yes. aware of it because she's been a Jesuit, but she's never really had to engage with it until now. And now it's life and death. And it's interesting that she's so versed on it, but I guess that makes sense. If you're going to Arrakis, probably know what the Missionaria Protectiva has done here. I'm, I'm sure that's part of the training 101, right? It's got to be at least a little bit, <laughs> or yeah. at least I, I would imagine the general, uh, you know, form or the process they use on any planet is probably pretty made aware of for all Bene Gesserits. It's funny to to simplify this thing or to put, you know, to put it in terms somebody super not familiar with Dune might get, or, or somebody maybe that knows Star Wars. It almost remember how the Ewoks loved gold C three PO. Oh yeah, <laughs> it would almost be like you went there on purpose with a gold C three PO because you know that your order convince them that gold plated thing things is awesome like it, that's the difference they they were lucky in return of the jedi but right. if it was dune it would have been planned ahead of time like you'd be showing up going yeah we a thousand years ago here's what we did now <laughs> consequently they love gold fucking talking funny people so we're gonna put our gold talking funny guy on the ship we're gonna bring him with us they're gonna worship us. it's gonna be great it was really the laziest mission our protective mission of just having an annoying chattering gold robot be around and you know, they did that a couple dozen times over a couple hundred years, and now they fucking worship them. Oh, and if we get one of the answers to the questions wrong, they'll cook us alive and eat us. So Scoop your brains right out of your Stormtrooper helmet. <laughs> have, your, have your answers ready. But um, there's this great moment where, <clears throat> excuse me, she, you know, keep, says keep the blade near you, and she sheaths it, <clears throat> excuse me, unblooded, and Mabes gasps dropping the knife take the water of my life this <laughs> is this mapes, is a cardinal love, sin this is a cardinal sin absolutely and i love that mapes is the one here who actually made the mistake yes like mapes is the one who sheaths it and that's why she's like kill me you have to kill me now like that's unallowed <laughs> and uh, instead she just gives her a small cut to satisfy the the culture and she notes the ultra-fast coagulation, very neat, a moisture-conserving mutation that these Fremen have. Yeah, she barely bleeds. Mm. <laughs> and dude, well, another one of my favorite moments in here, uh, when, when Mapes is saying she grabs the sheath knife, conceals it in Jessica's bodice, who sees that knife must be cleansed or slain, she snarled. You know that, my lady. Mm. I know it now, Jessica thought. <laughs> I know it now, yeah. And, yeah, uh, and that's that, so brilliant. Letting that her lead, fill you in. Absolutely. That leads to a later part uh, of the conversation where she says, the young cleansed to have seen a Chris knife may never leave Arrakis alive. Never forget that, my lady. You've been entrusted yes. with a Chris knife. I like how the Chris knife has this mysticism about it like a, like a lightsaber, you would say. There's something right. very special about it. It's it's not just something everyone has. Well, to me, it, it alludes to this idea that the Fremen are a purposefully secretive people. It's not It's not just that, like, I think there's a... You could By necessity, this, probably. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but I think you could read this book for a while and not quite get that because you would think, oh, well, the Harkonnens just kind of ignored them and underestimated them. They're not, you know, it's not, it's not a matter of, of them being secretive. It's a matter of nobody caring to look. But I think they are very, this is kind of when we start to realize they are purposefully very secretive. They, you know, they don't allow their knives to leave the fucking planet. They don't allow anybody to see their knives without blood being drawn. Mm. Like, that is some intensive <laughs> secrecy. Like, they believe it is necessary to their, you know, their, their culture surviving. Right. And I'm sure 80 years of Harkonnen rule 
even though they ignored them largely, any any dust ups they had were probably met with with a lot of cruelty from the Harkonnen, right? Based on what oh, we sure. know, right? Definitely. So I like when <laughs> I like when she just kind of sets her back up, and uh, I, I like this. I, I almost like this sort of. Uh, gallantry or bravery from shout out. She's like more than your puny cut. Cause she's, cause she says, do you think the blood bothered me? I'm of the desert and I've seen blood plenty. Cause they're talking about the blood on the bull hell on the bullhead. Yes. And that's when she's like, Oh, I see. And I, and some of my own more than you drew with your puny scratch. I like how she says that to which <laughs> she's like, Oh, you wish me to cut deeper. Oh no, 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 I'm kidding. <laughs> bodies, <laughs> bodies want her sk- The body's water scant enough. It's fine. I like that Shadow is still testing her a little, yes, like testing yes. back. Like she's she's not just going to be dominated either. She and she has a she has a there is there is a this, there's some character here. There's some I like the way she says to the bullhead, "Oh, killed the killed the duke, did you?" <laughs> right. The, the way she, after she starts to pick it up at towards towards the end of this year, but I love that. I I I, I don't know. There's something she has. A, she's got some chutzpah and some comedy, a little bit of comedy to her. Yeah, more absolutely. than your puny scratch. <laughs> <laughs> and do, another great uh, thought that Jessica has here that I like, uh, where she's talking about you know remembering some of the specific catchphrases from the Missionary Protectiva, the coming of the Reverend Mother to free you. Sure, she thinks, but I'm not a Reverend Mother. And then Great Mother, they planted that one here. This must be a hideous <laughs> place. Like, like they only they only bust out the Great Mother myth for places that are just real <laughs> fucked up. That's outstanding. Yeah, if we know we really need a lot of extra power, that one was that was an extra fifty years of infiltration. Let me tell you, <laughs> got to build temples for this place. <laughs> Absolutely. But I, I do I like how we we are not quite sure how Jessica fits into their beliefs yet, but we just understand that right. her being a Bene Gesserit and her possibly being in their eyes a Reverend Mother. Tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, but that that is important to them. That that is what something they're looking for. Yeah, and I think Jessica knows enough to know what space the Bene Gesserit specifically have, and and what and what Shoutout Mapes would accept. Like she probably knows that based on her own training and what the Missionary Protectiva did, that she's not going to be asked directly, "Are you the Reverend Mother?" In question, right? She probably knows that they've been given just enough to know to treat the Bene Gesserit with reverence. Right, right, right. They're a part of part of the plan. Absolutely. Like you, you. If if you have a bunch of primitive people on a planet, and you have, and and they hear about all these great Jedi's, they might not know the difference between an apprentice, a knight, and a master on on right. face value. They just know Jedi, right? Yeah, that's a good point. A good so point. that that might be sort of the position she finds herself in. Just as a Bene Gesserit, she is something sacred. Yeah, uh, this this sort of ends with um, uh, this sort of ends with her thinking there's something wrong with this place, right? Hawat says it's safe, but there's something wrong. She just has this sense, this feeling for it. Yes. And Mo, very interestingly, behind her, Mapes paused in clearing the wrappings from the bull's head, looked at the retreating back of Jessica. She's the one, all right. She muttered, "Poor thing." Ah. Oh, so something about this legend and you know and, and who they believe Jessica to be as the one is also something of doom. <laughs> yes, of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> Don't be silly. How else would it go in this book? Awesome. 
Well, that brings us on into chapter eight. So we'll go ahead and read the heading for this one, which is a delightful one. Yue, 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 goes the refrain. A million deaths were not enough for Yue. From A Child's History of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. What a delightful future with children chanting death to Yue. A million deaths were not enough. It's a good society you got going. Boy, Yue must have done something pretty bad. Damn, I don't know. A million deaths? Damn, it seems a little harsh. That's a lot Maybe of a thousand. deaths. Thousand reasonable. <laughs> I mean, even even like six sucks. It's a lot. It's pretty <laughs> it's bad. A, it's pretty bad. But I guess you want as many as lives he impacted with his treachery. So maybe count that number and do it that many times. <laughs> uh, however many that may be, I don't know. We'll see. This could all be BS. We don't know what's up with you. Eh? We're going to find out, though. We are. <laughs> this is where we find out a lot more about UA's problems, <laughs> his fixations. <laughs> We know because of the Harkonnen chapter that Yue is the target of uh, of the, I guess you would say, flipping of his allegiance from Atreides to Harkonnen, right? Yes. Well, a very regretful allegiance out of despair and necessity. That, yes, we learn the details of that allegiance flip here. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we remember from those earlier chapters was that he was con- he, his the suspicion of him is so low because of what is called his souk school training. Um, we're going to talk about that as we dive into this. But yeah, this is a largely conversation between Yue and Jessica, and um, it's pretty good stuff. I like this. It's not super long, but it's enough for us to get into the man's thought processes and sort of the unspoken fencing that seems to be occurring between. The two of them, it's almost like it, it, it's almost like he's unwittingly having to parry her inquiries and not stab himself with his own guilt. Right. 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 And what I love about this, like it, it starts almost immediately when she, you know, she first comes in the room. She sees Yoey standing at the, the window looking out past and she says, good afternoon. Where's Paul? And he says, which is out of character, your son grew tired, Jessica. I sent him into the next room to rest. And immediately he stiffens, saying, "Forgive me, my lady. My thoughts were far away. I did not mean to be familiar." And because he's calling her by her first name, she yes. is royalty. Like he's not supposed yes. to behave that way to her. And what I love about that, you know, she she forgives him immediately. She says, "Wellington, please. You know, we've known each other for six years. It's long past time formalities should have been dropped between us in private." And he says, in his mind, he thinks. I believe it worked. Now she'll think anything unusual in my manner is due to embarrassment. She'll not look for deeper reasons when she believes she already knows the answer. Mm. I like that. Is that is so cool. It, what, what's interesting about that is we understand, based on the Benny Jezra, based on the discussion between the shout-out Mapes and Jessica, based on everything we know about the Benny Jezra's ability to discern truth from fiction, that the UA is playing a very dangerous game with the likes of Jessica and he knows it very much. Right. Um, and, uh, and I love, I love that we get an insight into the man from so much of this conversation we're diving into Matt, but how about in just the way he's described as a fleshless stick figure in over large black clothing, a caricature poised for stringy movement at the direction of a puppet master. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's great. Great and that's, prose. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's and that's why I love him him doing this. Like I don't even I actually have a lot of sympathy for the character of Huey. I feel bad for the guy. Um and I I still find it interesting that he knows he has to play at least a bit of a game even though he doesn't want to be a part of this. He doesn't want to be involved in the with this conspiracy and 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 feels terrible about it. But he knows that my manner will give me away because yes. he's he's constantly shocked and worried and shaken up and distracted by by what he's going through. So he has to find another way to portray that, to allow that feeling to be understood by people and have them attribute it to something else. Because he Indeed. can't give away why he really feels that way, but he also knows he can't fully hide it. So he needs to have another reason for it. And, and he also makes it very, very makes a very poignant effort to ensure that he always uses the truth in this engagement whenever possible. Right. And this is our insight into her, Jessica, and his wife, Juana, the subject of this entire betrayal. And um, because she is also Benny, or was Benny Jezra, we don't know, in that we understand that Jessica does not have the truth, the, the, the truth say as fully developed as Juana did, which is why UA is in a unique position with Jessica. Um, and, and what I think is fascinating about this map is that UA probably has a bit of insight into the perceptiveness of the Bene Gesserit if he was married to one. Right, right. So he, he knows probably he knows, he knows he has to be careful. And conversely, he knows maybe when he can be a little, maybe how he could potentially deceive her. I'm sure it was very difficult in his house to be like, yeah, the dishes are done. She's like, <laughs> no, they're, no, they're not. I can tell by the inflection in your voice. He's like, fuck, again, <laughs> shit. Right, but with Jessica, he knows that she's not as good, maybe as spotting that as Juana, which is fascinating. It makes Juana a very intriguing character. We know nothing about, but maybe that gives him a little bit of a blueprint to to avoid the perceptive thrusts from Jessica's mind. Right? <laughs> exactly. He knows he has to to hide it at least to a degree. Yeah. They they talk a bit about the about the people of the planets. Um, they they talk a little about the Harkonnens. Treatment of them, you know, these people, they only know of the Harkonnen. They don't know of anything other than the Harkonnen. They don't, they don't see us as any different at this point. They're just kind of talking about this stuff, right? Right, right. And then just looking out at the, at the people and how, mm-hmm. how decrepit they are and how much, you know, like, I love this moment of him watching the people, you know, walk by and looking at the date palms, looking at mm-hmm. the palm trees. And they have this, like, very stern expression on all of their faces. They're, they're all regarding these trees very specifically and 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 at first Jessica I think is the one who's like I'm not sure why and he's the one who points out that one date palm requires 40 liters of water a day hmm. man requires but 8 liters a palm then equals 5 men there are 20 palms out there 100 men yeah <clears throat> and that, that so they are used to being ruled over and dominated and very much so not liking it <laughs> mm. Yeah. And, and, and even she says there's hope as well as danger. So she tries to emphasize hope, but laughs to herself. Who am I trying to convince? Right. You know, I, <laughs> I like Jessica, how she has such a realist way about her and that she's very honest with herself in her internal dialogue. Yeah, no, that's true. She, that is a good way of putting it. She is, she is very honest with herself, even when she knows she can't be outwardly. Mm. What I find interesting about this entire betrayal, and I, and I have some sympathy for you, too, maybe a little less than you, but just this idea that he's forced into this, just to know the truth of his wife's fate. What I find so interesting about that, and the only comparison I even have to it is, 
is just in, uh, you know, uh, my Jessica, my wife, Jessica, she watches all these disappeared shows and like the, the toll it takes on not knowing the fate of your loved one is so right. brutal. Like you see it played out in those shows. Cause those are real fucking people is so brutal. And just the not knowing, yeah, and just the not knowing, and I think because of that, it does lead some, it does, it does lend some credence to the idea that this guy could be flipped, right? He's right. so curious about what her fate is, and uh, and he doesn't trust the Harkonnen at all. I mean, how could he? But yeah, that's absolutely. that's desperation for you, right? Right. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> there's some discussion here about, you know. Uh, if only it was possible to hate these people instead of love them. This is Yue referring to the Atreides. In her manner, in many ways, Jessica was like his wana, yet that thought carried his own, its own rigors in hardening him to his purpose. The ways of the Harkonnen cruelty were devious. Wana might not be dead. He had to be certain. Do not worry for us, Wellington, Jessica said. The problem's ours, not yours. And he thinks, she thinks I worry for her. her he blinked back tears. And I do, of course, but I must stand before that black baron with his deed accomplished and take my chance to strike him where he is weakest in his gloating moment. So See, I, I it's love so that, that great, that wrestling, the internal battle. Right. Right. And I love that. He, even in his own mind, he, he is still committed to, I fucking hate this Baron and I will still try and take him out. Like I will still try. Even I will do his bidding for this horrible purpose just so that I can know about my loved one. But at the same time, I do fucking hate him, and I will try and kill him for mm, what he's done. Absolutely. Yep. Um, you know, the, the we, we get this moment where they kind of peer in on Paul, who's, of course, pretending to be asleep, and Jessica getting this, this overwhelming feeling of love for someone and, and looking at him and sort of seeing biology at work, the the mishmash of of the boy, uh, the mishmash of, of, of course, Leto and her, and, uh, and then... And then Yue wondering, why did Wana never give me children, right? He knew as a doctor that wasn't the case. Was there a Benny Jesuit reason? And that's when he considers for the first time, interesting in that it takes this moment, mm-hmm. he wonders if he was caught up in some bigger, more complicated pattern, right? Right. Was there a Benny Jesuit reason? Was she instructed mm. to give, serve a different purpose? What could it have been? Could it be the plans within plans within plans, Pyta? <laughs> Yeah, but they do. They both sort of marvel at the lad sleeping. You know, it's it's one of those moments, and um, we get to the uh, we get into more talk about water. So Jessica has some interesting thoughts about the water. She has some interesting thoughts about the almost mysterious and unprecedented lack thereof, even for desert standards. Right, the fact that there there are well holes dug mm. and they always bring up water, but it only trickles, and then after a short time, it dies out completely again. Yes, and they can there drill is water ag- down there, and they can drill again and get the same result, and then it kind of fades out again. Now, exactly. I'm not an expert on digging wells, Matthew, but I <laughs> do either. think that that's pretty interesting. Like you wouldn't find an aquifer and then have it dry up immediately like that. You, you know, it's right. it. There's something suspicious about the water. Um, and I like that. She, she, she says something's, something's wrong. A, a nearby hole produces the same result. Has no one ever been curious about this? It is curious. She suspects some living agency, he asks. And she's just curious. What's going on? Something is plugging this water. That's my suspicion. And that's the first time in this book 
where we just don't take the lack of moisture and water in the desert for granted. It's actually being considered intellectually. Right. Like, why is, why does it work this way? It's a mystery Mm. that's been unexplored here. And if it, and if it has been explored, the Harkonnens have sealed it off because you can only imagine the, what kind of stewards the Harkonnen were, Matthew, right? When they left, <laughs> not environmentalists, I imagine, <laughs> and and not the kind of people who, when their arch enemies are coming to take over, probably left anything useful for them. <laughs> right, salt the earth. Right, nothing, nothing. I mean, they probably had to leave some stuff because you don't, you don't want to be. Again, this gets back to what Leto and Paul are talking about. You don't want to be responsible for lack of production because you torched the place on your way out, and Leto fell behind. But it's it's Baron Vladimir Harkonnen's fall who gets the knock on the door, right? So you have <laughs> right, to leave right. stuff in certain working conditions, but knowledge that is peripheral to the, the, the harvesting of melange, nah, seal it, burn it. Don't share <laughs> any information with them. That's not relevant to their task. Right. Anything beyond that. Mm. Um, the Harkonnen sealed off many sources of information by Rax. Perhaps there was reason to suppress it. What reason, she asked. And then there's the atmospheric moisture. Little enough of it, certainly, but there's something. It's the major source of water here, caught in the wind traps and precipitators. Where does it come from, right? That's a great point. Where does the water that they're trapping in the atmosphere come from? It's not evaporating from large bodies of water, is it? The polar caps, they wonder. Uh, Cold air takes up little moisture, Wellington. Jessica's pretty smart about this stuff. I like that, you know, she's probably no planetologist part of Kynes, judge of change, but... She has an inkling as to something fishy going on here. And I love these. I love her inquisitive nature. Yeah. Yeah. Just the, the curiosity of asking why. Yeah. But there's always the Harkonnen veil. We know now. We, 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 if they knew, they didn't share. They were here 80 years. Right. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. I'm just sort of, you know, role playing at this part. But that's, that's kind of this discussion. They consider all of this stuff. And that's Dude. when the Harkonnen word comes up, right? Yes, and even Jessica notices. You say that name with so much venom, the way you say it. Mm. Even my Duke's voice doesn't carry that weight of venom when he uses the hated name. And that's when, we, like mm. we were talking about earlier, UA realizes he must tell, the, his only solution is to tell the truth as far as I can. And he <laughs> allows himself to speak that, you know, my, my wife, my Wana, the Harkonnens, they, and he wouldn't, he, he's unable to even say it. Um, he like he basically allows himself to express his emotions and his feeling about the situation and his agony about the situation. That's the truth. He allows that much truth to come out, but nothing more. Mm. Just enough for her to sort of reflect on the affection she has for this man, right? We 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 have to remember, and it, and it is hard when you're reading a book for the first time if you're a first time reader or if you haven't read it in a while that these people have lengthy relationships. You know, her seeing him in pain and reciting this, this is very difficult. This isn't just a random nobody. Dr. Yue, of course, we know the setup. We know, we understand the setup, which is what makes this very compelling because we already know how Harkonnen talked about him, how the Baron talked about him, right? So we are aware of the situation in which he is, in fact, compromised. And watching this interaction makes that very interesting, knowing what we know based on the earlier chapter. Right, right. There's... Really, this chapter is the best of just having that dramatic irony of us mm-hmm. knowing the truth about UA and watching the rest of our characters not know that truth and even come very close to to seeing it, very close to unraveling it. But even in their own thoughts, their own minds, they don't suspect him. 
Yeah, they continue. They continue talking. Uh, she's, you know, she considers her affection for him. I like that he sort of just casually says, "You know, this place is a trap, right?" The Leto knows this. It's funny because it's so obvious to these trained people. They all know it, and that's and that's that feeling that hangs in the air, right? And you know what that's like. You know, when something is on many different people's minds, there's almost this mystical quality to it, to where we go, "Ooh, I don't know." You know, it's like. It's like, ooh, this is a lingering inauguration and everyone has these feelings and thought. Like, it's a thumping hangs in the air because everyone's thinking it at the same time. It sort of creates right. this collective whirlwind and it's interesting. And, and it's almost like he's like, you know, and she's like, oh, yeah, but it'll take more than a trap. She just sort of throws it off. Like, it's going to take more than a trap to catch Leto. And, um, <laughs> and that's when you always like, well, or she says, perhaps I should have more confidence in him. He is a brilliant tactician. Right, right. Uh, but he even points out that we've been uprooted and it's easy to kill the uprooted yes. plant, especially when you put it down in hostile soil. Mm. A little more pessimistic. <laughs> Indeed. I like the, I like the, uh, I like that they're using, you know, plants and roots, something of course fed by water and it's great scarcity here. <laughs> Cause that's the only way they know how to think. They come from a planet of plenty. Absolutely. Water was there. They really are out of their element. They talk about some of the water riots and, you know, uh, and how they've done some things to sort of quell that. And uh, Jessica continues to stare hard out at the window and she says, I can smell death in this place. Hawat sent advance agents in here by the battalion. Those guards outside are his men. The cargo handlers are his men. They've been unexplained withdrawals and large sums of money from the treasury. The amounts mean only one thing, bribes in high places. Where Thufir Hawat goes, death and deceit follow. You malign him? Oh, malign, I praise him. Death and deceit are our only hopes now, <laughs> right? I love that. <laughs> this great, so again, we've heard about Howard before, the master of assassins, a mentat. We know he's a very powerful and capable man. And I like that she's discussing all of these things going on. You know, it's funny, I, I, it's funny because I wonder if UA, by saying you malign him, was almost hoping he could get the scent on to him a little bit, right? Oh, wait, through fear? Yes. Like, I wonder if UA was trying to, was hoping that by saying you malign him when she was saying we're through for how it goes, death and deceit follow. Maybe by him saying you malign him, he's trying to push her brain to kind of get thinking that to get her off of him. Right, right. To at least to have another person that could be in her, you know, rogues gallery of people to suspect. Sure. But she says, oh, no, I praise him. Death and deceit are great. Love him. Great weapons. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta have it in this world. Mm, yes, yes. But there's there's very plain English in this chapter, Matt, talking about there will be bloodshed soon, right? The Harkonnens are coming. They're 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 not gonna stop. The Baron cannot forget that Leto is a cousin of the royal blood, no matter what the distance. While the Harkonnen titles came out of the Chone pocketbook, but the poison in him, deep in his mind, is knowledge that Atreides and Harkonnen banished for cowardice after the Battle of Corinne. So we learn that the history between these houses goes back to something called the Battle of Corinne. Yeah. That's what started all of this. This entire piece, the, the entire piece between these two houses is something called the Battle of Corinne. Very neat. There Now there is a book done by Frank's son, Brian, with the help of Kevin J. Anderson, who's done some Star Wars books. And, um, and they wrote about the Battle of Corinne. I believe it came out in the early 2000s. Sounds right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and, it, and I am interested in reading it. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe uh, if we ever do bonuses off of this, we can 
kind of get into the Battle of Corinne or something like that, but I don't want to waylay the episode too much to talk about the Battle of Corinne. Just understand that there was, in fact, <clears throat> something that happened, it's like 10,000 years ago, and, and it's really- Damn, that's an old feud. It's a long <laughs> one, baby. It's a long one, right? That's why it's hard for us to really wrap our heads around the hatred between the two, right? Right. All, all because a Harkonnen was labeled a coward and banished. Yeah, and uh, and I'll just tease this. Uh, the storyline is uh, between Vorian Atreides and Abelord Butler. Abelord is a fiercely loyal to his mentor, Vorian, and it kind of goes on from there. So pretty interesting stuff. Cool. Yeah. Well, we know there's somebody named Abelord, right? <laughs> wait, who's wait? Ab, we do <laughs> Abelord. Uh, oh yeah, maybe 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 I'm thinking prequel books. That might be <laughs> early. That might be other knowledge slipping in accidentally. <laughs> Whoopsie! Whoopsie. You, got, you got too much dude in your brain. <laughs> it's coming out my ears or my mouth in this case. <laughs> but yes, the old feud, acid touch of hate, <laughs> and now poor you is like I'm trapped in this ludicrous feud in my wanna. Is probably dead or worse. See, this is why I feel so bad for you. Of like, he never, he is not a part of either house. He is, he's not involved. It's just that he is a teacher employed by the Atreides. Mm-hmm. That's it. And he's like, well, I'm fucking sucked into their their war of hatred between one another. Sure, sure. It's a rough spot. Rough. Yes. So they continue discussing um, a little bit more here. They talk about. Spice. Now, this is fascinating because we finally get more detail on the effects of actual spice. Because spice, the melange, it's all been quite mysterious. We know it's super important. We know it really matters. We know that the that the that the guild pilots use it to navigate space, that they can't without it. And that's super important, right? <clears throat> but what about it? We both we we both learned that both of these characters have have tried spice. They've actually consumed spice, and they discuss it tasting like cinnamon. And then they say, "But never the same twice. It's like life. It presents a different face each time you take it. Some hold that the spice produces a learned flavor reaction. The body, learning the thing is good for it, interprets the flavor as pleasurable, slightly euphoric, and like life, never to be truly synthesized." I think it would have been wiser for us to renegade, to take ourselves beyond the Imperial Reach. That's part of a different conversation. But that that discussion of spice, very interesting, right? Yeah, that it never tastes the same. I mean, for me, it implies that its effects vary from person to person as well. That it is something that it has no easily charted effects on human beings. We just understand some of the basics, that it does somehow prolong life. It does, some, it does expand consciousness enough for for some some way of these uh, uh, spacing guild to use that uh, to actually navigate, so it has these very practical applications, but yet it's also something that's not still not fully understood. Mm, indeed, and um, they go deeper into he just sort of flippantly is like, "Why didn't the duke marry you?" Like they're they're this is. It, you know, they, these two characters are talking about a few different things. They're talking about water rights. They're talking about about Chome and this impending doom. And they're talking about the Harkonnen. And they're talking about these different things that have come up. They talk about spice. They're having a conversation. They're just two people talking. Yeah. And I think it's very important to note 
that that is something that indicates a type of friendship that is deep, which goes back to her fondness of Yue, which goes back to him, if only it was impossible to hate these people instead of love them. There's a very deep connection between these two characters, and I think that's very important. And I think, and I think Frank Herbert really wanted that to come across in this chapter because it's it's too easy just to say a million deaths for UA, right? That's that's right. His, that's 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 people reflecting on history like we often do, not really knowing the story, right? Right, not knowing the human beings and what led exactly. To we we just look at them as pictures in a book with a couple of paragraphs and go, oh he's a piece of shit or, or he's a hero and that's it. Like we, there's subtlety here and I like that. Definitely. Yeah. You, you really do get a sense in this chapter for how much Jessica feels for him and knows him very, very well. Yes. And vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and I do, I love the, when he does ask her the question of, you know, why haven't you made the Duke marry you? And she's not offended by the question. She's offended by made him marry me. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, Oh, I should not have asked. But then, like we were talking about earlier, she she realizes what it's for. That, you know, if the Duke remains unmarried, some of the great houses can still hope for alliance. And she sighed, motivating people, forcing them to your will, gives you a cynical attitude toward humanity. It degrades everything it touches. If I made him do this, then it would not be his doing. And again, I think that goes back to Jessica's real, genuine, deep love for the Duke. That she would not, she has, and that's something, it's, it's hard to remember that about her sometimes, that because she has been a Jesuit, she essentially has all the tools in her kit, her arsenal, to make the Duke do as she as she pleases. Like she knows how to manipulate people. That's a huge part of the Bene Gesserit order: is understanding human beings enough to to implant their uh, plant ideas into their minds and, and change their behaviors. So she has the power to do that. But she loves the Duke so much that she's not going to force his hand. She, she allows him to to choose or not choose to do that. And what's utterly compelling about that statement is she's standing in the face of somebody going to deceive her entire house. <laughs> and, and, and is unaware of it because of the affection. I, I don't think you say what you just said, Matthew, in quoting her, this, if I made him do it, then it would be uh, his doing, right? Talking about degrading everything it touches, that sentence you quoted. Yeah. That's true friendship to tell somebody that. You don't open your mouth and tell somebody that unless you really trust them, and she really trusts you, eh? Yeah, that's true. That's a very good point. You, you know, you don't just flippantly talk about this, right? I mean, right. They, she, he, he knows more about her feelings about her marriage than most friends know about their other friends' thoughts on their marriage. I mean, this is a very close thing here, and I like that. And, uh, right, this, you know, this they, they talk a little bit more about the Duke, but I, but but in... In, without belaboring this last page, I do like all of this. I like her saying all of the time we talked, he was hiding something, holding something back to save my feelings, no doubt. He's a good man. Again, she hesitated, almost turned back to confront you and drag the hidden thing from him. But that would only shame him, frighten him to learn he's so easily read. I should place more trust in my friends. Wow. Wow. The painful irony of that last line of us the reader knowing, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> no, you shouldn't. You were right to, to, to think twice about it, to want to press it. I, I love that she's concerned with his, with his pride, that she's concerned with him feeling not ashamed, right? I, I like that she's concerned with how it might feel to him if she were to frighten him, 
because she could. She could turn the voice on him in a second, and it would be done. Just close right. the book. The story ends, right? <laughs> exactly. Tell, tell me what you know and what you aren't saying. <laughs> okay. There's a, there's a whole thing planned. It's not going to be good. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's going to suck so much. <laughs> but, yeah, I like, I like that. I, it, man, what a, it's, it's, it is a shocking irony that it, this, is such a, this is such an, I don't know, most people don't sit and talk about the chapter between Yue and Jessica, I don't think, that when they're re- recalling all these awesome parts in Dune, they're probably like, yeah, that <laughs> conversation between you and Jessica, how cool was that? Ah, and this awesome. giant they science, see by a window? Right, and this giant science fiction epic. But there's so much interesting stuff going on here. This, this gets back to thematically the idea of deception. It's just the central core of so much that happens. It's such a great moment in the book to show us how she has this respect for her Duke and respect for him and that her kindness could be misleading her here. This is, it's, it's a bummer. It's, it's tragic irony. That is Yeah. I'm glad you said it that way of like, she is a, she's one of the more pure characters. She is actually really, really good and, and cares about the feelings of the people who, who work for for her and her family. But it is that kindness that is being used against her. And if we go back to the earlier chapters, Matt, it's that very kindness that put her in this position. When the Bene Gesserit mother, Mohayim, said, your, his feeling, your, your Duke's feelings about having a son were irrelevant. You were wrong, right? <laughs> I wanted him to have a son. That's all she thought of. I wanted my Duke to have a son. And she's like, well, well now you fucked up. Mohayim <laughs> made it very clear that her thinking for Leto and, and, or think of doing something kind for Leto, right? I love that. I love that she is who she is, live or die. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. She goes against <laughs> She's principled. a lot. She's principled. Yeah. No, totally. Good stuff. I really like Jessica. <laughs> yeah, she's great. Well, so, you want to read the, uh, our, what is this, chapter nine? I would love to. Many have marked the speed with which Moadib learned the necessities of Arrakis. The Bene Gesserit, of course, know the basis of this speed. For the others, we can say that Muad'Dib learned rapidly because his first training was in how to learn. And the first lesson of all was the basic trust that he could learn. It is shocking to find how many people do not believe they can learn and how many more believe learning to be difficult. Muad'Dib knew that the very knew that every experience carries its lesson. Wow, you could do thirty minutes on just that. I love this. I think this is in, in, incredibly interesting. I also think it's uh, it's something sorely missing in today's world of twenty twenty. Just this idea of it's not just I'm going to tell you things and then those things are going to become rote for you and you're going to believe them. No. We're going to tell you, you're capable of learning. This is how you learn. Now go forth and learn. It's almost this idea of critical thinking, right? It's not, I'm going to give you all the information, and then you're going to regurgitate it to me. I'm going to make sure you're correct, give you a passing grade, and now that's how you think. No. I'm going to give you tools to analyze the information. And I'm going to give you, and before that, I'm going to give you the confidence that you can do it. So it's almost like me sitting down with you and saying, Matt, what we're about to do is very difficult, but I know you can do it. I'm very confident in your ability to do it. And now here's how you get the tools you need to learn the things to do, right? It's, 
it's in a very simple way to say you can lead a horse to water type of thing, right? I, I love this. I love this idea of saying not only should you have the confidence to learn, but here's how you do learn. Now go learn. Don't just regurgitate what I'm telling you. It's very interesting. Yeah. In, in the challenge of learning, the difficulty. But that it's an achievable difficulty. An achievable difficulty. Um, there's a lot of, you know, one of the things we're not spending a lot of time on in this book, just, just in the interest of some form of time, I mean, this is going to be, there's going to be a lot of material here on, on this podcast, but is I, I'm not going through a bunch of the, you know, Paul's attention to the carved headboard. Like I don't have many, uh, many highlights on, on descriptive text un, yeah. unless it's something really compelling. Like of course the description of UA, um, but, but basically we know that Paul's laying in bed. He pops up in bed, he gets up and he is, thinking about things to learn. You know, he's reading about Arrakis with his film book or, or watching a film book. I don't know quite how that works. And, uh, and about, uh, you know, different, you know, uh, the burrow, the bush, the date, the palm, San Rubina, Kit Fox, Desert Hawk, Kangaroo. He's learning all these things, pictures, names. Wow, this is so interesting. I'm going to learn about the spice and the sandworms. And suddenly he is confronted with something that I did highlight from the from a descriptive text point of view, which is this, Matthew. <laughs> from behind the headboard slipped a tiny hunter seeker, no more than five centimeters long. Paul recognized it at once, a common assassination weapon that every child of royal blood learned about at an early age. It was a rave it was a ravening silver Raven. ravening of sliver of metal guided by some nearby hand and eye. It could burrow into moving flesh and chew its way up nerve canals to the nearest vital organ. So here's Paul quietly in his bed, think seemingly left alone by his mother and Yui who were conversing in the next room. And he's thinking about stuff, watching movies. He didn't, he didn't take his sleeping meds. And he gets up and he is confronted by a tiny flying electronic device that is meant to kill him. Dude, this Whoa. is such a, a moment. It's our <clears throat> first moment of physical action right. outside of him training with Gurney. Exactly. But just that, I love how small and discreet this little thing is. It's just, it's like, I imagine like a flying, just almost, almost like a flying needle. Yes, absolutely. Just, just wicked, a wicked looking flying needle. And him freezing. I love this moment. Paul <sighs> froze and immobility saved his life. Indeed. Because that is how the hunter seekers find you. It's movement they're attracted to, or how they are able to see. Even though we come to find out the hunter seekers are partly controlled by a person nearby, right? Uh, but that That's important. They, yeah, yeah. But no, we, he, they're able to detect you through your movement, and he through you know. I, I imagine this is a lot of royal kid training. Is a lot of this is the way <laughs> yes. the way of many people will try to kill you, and these are things you need to be aware of. And that instinctual, you know, it's it's practically instinctual for him now that he knows to just freeze. Yeah, and, and he and starts the, to remember the the hunter seeker limitations and and how what he can do to to avoid it. And, and in the description, uh, I, I mentioned it, but I'll, I'll repeat it: a common assassination weapon that every child of royal blood learned about at an early age. Yikes. Exactly. Yippee. <laughs> what are we learning about the many ways today, class, in which our enemies will try to kill us? The world is very horny to kill you. I was kind of hoping to just play with my G.I. Joe's. Oh, no. No, you're growing up today. (laughs) (laughs) It's time to think about the specter of death. I love when Paul has this thought in his head, who's operating that thing. It has to be someone nearby. 
right? right? That, that gives big... us instant insight into, ooh, infiltrator. Exactly. Yeah, that it, that it has a very limited range. Yep. He manages to get his hands on it, and he smashes it, and he holds onto it very tight, thinking he has disabled it, or hoping he has, and then the shout-out Mapes is there, right? <laughs> he saves her life by he grabbing it. He saves her life. She opens the door to his room, and that movement, it just immediately darts toward, because that's the only movement in the room. That's right. And I like how she's so nonplussed at first. She's like, your father's looking for you? And then she realizes, huh, I've heard of such like. It would have killed me, not so, question mark. I was its target, but it was coming for me, she said, because you were moving. And he's like, well, by the way, who are you, you weirdo lady? <laughs> this shriveled old lady who just showed up in my room. I love when she says, then, you, then you've saved my life. I like, ah, interesting. Dude, again, yes, this, this is such a cool moment of like Fremen culture. We get to learn a little more about where she says, before I do your bidding, manling, Mate said, <laughs> I must cleanse the way between us. You've put a water burden on me that I'm not sure I care to support. And I love how we already understand mm -hmm. that in this context, water means blood. Like we understand Indeed. what she's saying here. That's been established. But we Fremen pay our debts be they black debts or white debts. And it's known to us, you've a traitor in your midst. Ugh. Who it is, we cannot say, but we're certain sure of it. Mayhap there's the hand that guided the flesh cutter. Awesome. So this is great because he's like, okay, go get my father's men, tell him what's happened. We got to seal off the house. We got to do this. We got to do that. They just tried to kill me. And she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me say this cool shit first. <laughs> <laughs> I got some shit to throw at you. Yeah, right? It's Hold great. On. You chill. Let me tell you about cleansing the way between us and the black debts and the white debts, okay? Uh, <laughs> there's a traitor. That, what a great plot point drop. And he just absorbs it in silence. Mm -hmm. And dude, also, how, how great is it that we learn how much the Fremen already knew about mm. this? Like, they've been holding on to this. And if he hadn't saved her life, she wouldn't have never told him. They were, they were sitting on this information. Like, it was almost lucky for her that she had that secret to tell because otherwise she would owe this debt. And it's like, you can tell in that moment, she's like, okay, I'll go ahead and drop this secret just so I can fulfill my life debt. <laughs> That's it. Think about how crazy that is just for a minute. She stood before a Benny Gesserit and didn't feel compelled enough to say anything. Yeah, exactly. That's wild. That's a good point. It's a really good point. Shit. But she, but she revealed it to the boy. I wonder if it's going to come back. I wonder if Jesse's going to be like, why didn't they tell us sooner? I don't know. We'll see. Good call. Hmm. But I, I think she never says a word unless Paul saves her life. Yeah, I know. But my point is, is it's going to get out. He's going to say, so, so the question becomes, will Paul tell his mom that the shout out mapes revealed this, right? And if so, will Jessica say, why didn't you tell me sooner to her? Mm, true. Mm, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> He, but I, but I love all of this uh, mentat stuff. He starts doing these mnemonic blinks, storing. I love this. He stores in his memory prune wrinkled features, darkly uh, brown, blue on blue eyes, without any white in them. He attached label the shadow mapes. Done in his memory forever. Picture perfect. Right, right. It's such an intentional way of thinking. It's so cool. Right, right. But he yeah, also off this they go. off they go. He learned about the weirding room. He's not quite sure what that means. Right. And, uh, but yeah, that's sort of the end of that chapter. That, that's just a quick look. I love that we established treachery here. We got some physical action that happens. We get, we get, mate, we get the shout out mapes to actually meet Paul. 
and uh, and we really start pushing this plot forward as there's treachery afoot. We've been hearing about treachery afoot. It's been being discussed. We know there's a character capable of treachery, what he's been thinking, but now we're seeing treachery occur in, in, in a physical form. Right. So we know that the danger is truly present. Indeed. It's go time, as they say. <laughs> that yeah. brings us to what, you would, what we are calling chapter 10, Matthew. And just as a point of reference, what page of the book are you on in your book? Chapter 10, chapter 10 starts at uh, page 112. I'm on page 88 in my hardcover, so there you go. Look at you, ahead of the game. Behind the game. <laughs> <laughs> my pages and words are bigger. You'll understand someday when you become very, very old like me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's read this chapter. chapter. What had the Lady Jessica to sustain her in her time of trial? Think you carefully on this Bene Gesserit proverb, and perhaps you will see. Any road followed precisely to its end leads precisely nowhere. Climb the mountain just a little bit to test that it's a mountain. From the top of the mountain, you can see you cannot see the mountain. From Muadib <laughs> Family Commentaries by the Princess Irulan. Oof, boy. <laughs> what what what's your take on 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 that? On the any road followed precisely to its end leads precisely nowhere. Climb the mountain just a little too bit to test that it's a mountain. From the top, you won't know it's a mountain or see it's a mountain. What 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 are we talking about here? I'm still struggling with this one, to be honest. I still I find it super interesting but i'm not quite sure of its meaning i mean for one it kind of reminds me of just the idea of striking out and not accepting paths before you and and Mm. testing the world and being a very active thinker i I don't know i feel like there's more to it that i'm not quite seeing yet let's talk about the any road followed precisely its end leads precisely nowhere it almost seems like it's a riddle but then it also seems overwhelmingly logical because if a road ends then it is over and it is thus nowhere, right? I know that's super getting goofy, like getting weird, weird no, like weirdly it. existential. Like but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> totally. Like if, you, like if you take life as an example, if your life leads to the end of your life, and then at the end of life, you, you, you enter oblivion, then it is in fact nowhere, right? It's, it's really, it's almost fatalistic in a sense. But, but it's almost like you lack the perception of it, which is very not Benny Gesserit. Because the climb the mountain just a little bit to test that it's a mountain. That's what they're telling you to do. Climb the mountain to test that it's a mountain and know you're on a mountain because if you're at the top of the mountain, you will not see it. That that strikes me as as almost metaphorical for command, right? Because one of the things we see about these Bene Gesserit is they don't, they're not at the top. They're always like third and third third in power. They they linger under the powerful and, and, and almost as a result of that, they don't get blinded by their own power, kind of, right? Mm, I like Climb yeah. the mountain a little bit and you'll know, you'll feel, you'll, you, you're aware of your mountain. But if you're at the top of it, you might miss stuff. Like maybe, maybe Emperor Shaddam doesn't see certain things he should because he's at the top of the mountain already. But if I'm a Benny Gesserit and I'm, you know, 700 yards down, I still am aware of everything that's going on down here and you're not. That's know. a good way of putting it. Just yeah, throwing, no, like I'm that. throwing shit at the wall, man. Jesus. Well, <laughs> well, no, also, I mean, thinking about the <laughs> intro of it, of what had Lady Jessica to sustain her in her time of trial, like the idea of her being in the midst of it and being overwhelmed by it, taking this perspective of being able to see the wider view better than mm, those at the top. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah, I, like it. I like it. So this is a great moment 
where we're going to start bringing some things together, some actions together. I didn't highlight a lot in this chapter because it's it's mostly descriptive text. Um, she's wondering, uh, you know, she's uh, at the end of the south wing. She found a metal stair spiraling to an oval door. This is where she starts finding this really mysterious room. She's exploring the castle a little bit, to, to, to put it lightly, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is where she starts to realize um, she she ends up finding this really interesting spot, right? Yes, this this hideaway room with its own airlock to to basically make a contained environment for all of these plants, like this huge, lush, wet fucking jungle room, basically. Mm-hmm. Full of yep. all of these exotic plants who have been shipped there and are being carefully maintained. And this is an add-on to the castle that was not originally built in. One of the things that's interesting about this chapter is I think we have a situation where we might be back a few minutes in time. because Oh, I see. Yeah, I Because think I, I think a cautious right. one, this mapes, Jessica thought, that's a good boy. He's in the fifth room from this end of the hall, the small bedroom, Jessica said. If you have any trouble waking him, call Dr. Yue. Paul may require a wake shot. So this is so so chapter 10 is Mapes heading to Paul's room where he's going to save her life. Right. Right? Because yeah. otherwise she'd be saying they tried to kill your son a second ago. You want to do something about it or do you want to look at plants? <laughs> right? Do you want to go look at some ferns? <laughs> Ooh, ferns. Really exciting. But no, <laughs> uh, I do I do think that I, I love this moment in this book. First of all, I love the mystery of the house. I love some of the descriptive text here um, about the idea of filter glass and seeing the yellow sun outside. That's so cool. It makes me think it's sort of one way or 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 difficult to spot because she sees outside down here. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And that's how I, she I, ends up seeing this 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 signal, which we'll get to later, which is super cool. I love stuff like that. But um, yeah, plotted plants, roses, giant pink blossoms. This is descriptions we have not heard in 90 pages, at least in my book, 100 and something in yours. But just this idea of this type of description. There's no color in this book outside of, you know, uh, royal heraldry <laughs> and uh, hawk crests <laughs> and, and house insignias. That's true. There's not a lot of down to earth poetic it's, images it's, it's, of, of, of plant life. Arrakis is is a barren world, right? <laughs> but also, I love that like this room could also be be seen as another aspect of the house that is out of touch with the people living beyond it. And, Absolutely, and, and this sealed in area that is you know expensive to have this. Like we've already we we know how desperately precious water is on Arrakis. So to have this room is a pretty massive indulgence in water like you wouldn't want the fremen to find out you have this room they're gonna be fucking pissed yes yes so water everywhere in this room on a planet where water was the most precious juice of life water being wasted so conspicuously conspicuously that it shocked her to her inner stillness that's how jessica feels right right she knows how and, and not exactly bad but just how like shockingly casual this is with water. She glanced out at the filter yellowed sun. It hung low on a jagged horizon above cliffs that formed part of the immense rock uplifting known as the shield wall. Filter glass, she thought. To turn a white sun into something softer and more familiar. How? Who could have built such a place? Leto? It would be like him to surprise me with such a gift, but there hasn't been time and there's been 
and he's been busy with more serious problems. So she's very curious as to what this is. This is this alcove is something very special. There's moisture here. There's plants here. There's this great view here through this filter glass, which I guess you know removes the harshness of the sun, so they can see out at the shield wall. And you know, I like that we go through this whole thing, and then she sees this note that says to the lady Jessica. May this place give you as much pleasure as it given me. Please permit the room to convey a lesson we learned from the same teachers. The proximity of a desirable thing tempts one to overindulge. On the path, on that path lies danger. My kindness wishes Margaret Lady Fenring. And Jessica goes, the hidden message of the note demanded immediate attention, couched as it was in a way to inform her, inform her the writer was another Benny Gesserit. A bare thought touched Jessica in the passing. The Count married this lady. Well, that's funny. But there's this clue here. On that path lies danger. That's a Benny Gesserit condition. Interesting. Because we do also already learn in this chapter that Howitt's men have already inspected this room. They've been in here. They've, they've sorted through everything. But they didn't notice that. Like, they didn't notice that Benny Gesserit line that was left exactly. by Margot Lady Fenring for Lady Jessica specifically. Mm, I love that. This reminds me of, uh, you know, in Dungeons and Dragons, they have something called Thieves Can't. Just this idea of like thieves, members of thieves' guilds have uh, this hidden language to communicate to each other. Oh, nice. Like innuendos and such that, that you don't pick up on. And I love, I love that this triggers training in Jessica to go. Aha, this means something. It means that there's something else here. So she starts feeling all over the place, looking for code dots, uh, anything that she can find, right? Absolutely. And she finds them on the underside of a leaf, Mm. a big fern leaf, and feels the dots. And there's a warning here. Do you want to read it? Ooh, hell yeah. Let's see. Your son and the Duke are in immediate danger. A bedroom has been designed to attract your son. Hmm. The H loaded it with death traps to be discovered, leaving one that may escape detection. And she, you know, has a moment of fear thinking about it, but she goes back to finish the dots, finish reading the dots. I do not know the exact nature of the menace, but it has something to do with a bed. The threat to your duke involves defection of a trusted companion or lieutenant. The H planned to give you as a gift to a minion. To the best of my knowledge, this conservatory is safe. Forgive that I cannot tell more. My sources are few as my count is not in the pay of the H. In haste, MF. Mm. And, and, you know, we talked about the hunter seeker or the hunter killer, but what we didn't do is describe how it sort of popped out of a panel in his bed. So that is, you know, this is great. I mean, this immediately, she whirls, she thrusts the leaf aside, she dashes to Paul and uh, she's out. She's, she's, (laughs) I mean, it's go time. She's terrified and, what a Paul nice! Paul shows up with the dead hunter seeker, and he name. does, and she's like, "Paul, wait, wait, what?" <laughs> and he's like, "Yeah, here it is. Tried to kill me." And that's when they're like, "Okay, immerse it in water." I love how he hasn't let go of it yet. I love that fear and training. He's not sure what to do with it, and they 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 dump it under the water. They they stick up. They push it down with like a plant stem, and it shorts out, and they know that it is now in fact disabled. <laughs> His eyes studied the room with a searching intensity that she recognized the <laughs> Jesuit way. Mm. This he's place like, could conceal anything. Yeah, and my room was supposed to be safe too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it had already been over once. Exactly. 
So Paul does ask, why do you think it's safe? And that's when she says, well, let me explain the note. I like how, I like how just a, sm- a small point of order in terms of like, you know, the writing specifically from a medicines. I like how Frank writes this here. He just writes, she pointed to the note, explained about it. That's it. Because right. we already heard the whole explanation. We don't need to hear all of it again, right? That would be a waste of writing. Mm-hmm. He relaxes a little bit knowing that, okay, this room is probably the safest room in the house. Yep. And, uh, and I think uh, how its men feel bad about this one, right? One of how its cores. He has his own cores, by the way. With little little uh, H's on their heads. <laughs> <laughs> We're Howard boys. We're how the Howard crew, and um, we realize that this is a pretty sophisticated that 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 they caught this person. That this person, right? And uh, yes, well, they've already caught he, him, and and they roughed him up a bit, and he ain't alive anymore. <laughs> right. Uh, I wonder if he took his own life. Right. I am wondered about that because the way it's described, sorry, my lady, we messed him up catching him. He died. <laughs> mm, yeah, like, he probably would have said if he killed himself. Right, right. I think so. I'm like, did you guys just roughhouse him until he was dead? <laughs> it could have been a shootout, you know, it could have been something like that. <clears throat> but nothing to identify him. And uh, uh, they don't know much. He has a native look. But the but put into that cairn more than a month ago by the look and left there to wait our coming. So he like walled himself in with mortar and stone. <laughs> and waited. And waited. This is super creepy. That's so insane. Yeah. The idea, like what a bizarre dedication to this cause that you would wall yourself into a hole for a month in waiting, miss your shot, and then get beaten to death. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> that's your that's your life. And they talk about the the importance of unit of, of using some sort of sonic device here in the future. That's something they may not have thought to do because they could have heard him through the wall. Um, but but they I guess they didn't think it was. Uh, I didn't think I guess they didn't think it was important at the time, just based on the fact that they covered everything and they didn't think somebody would do such a thing. It's an oversight. Right. It's an oversight. It's an oversight, but it is one where it's like the the, the dedication to that of, of you know walling themselves in. That's something that is pretty unexpected. <laughs> you don't think that's the kind of trap that will be waiting for you. No, absolutely. And and this actually comes up, doesn't it? Because you know Hawat gave it his personal attention. Well, of course, because we know that treachery is afoot. The question becomes: Well, do we trust Hawat? I mean, he's yeah. getting old, but he's overworked. We could take some sort of the load off of him. That only shame him though, right? I love this conversation between these two. We trust him. He is overworked. Maybe we lighten his workload. Sure. And then he'll be ashamed because he fucked up. He'll know that that's what's happening. And I love how it's actually Jessica who steps in to defend his honor. Yes, absolutely. Reminding him that he's served three generations of Atreides with honor. Again, what's Jessica doing? Standing up for somebody, believing somebody. She does it sure. with Leto. She does it with Hue. She does it with uh, Yue. She does it with Hawat. That's part of her character, and it's very much established. And Paul is definitely much more suspicious. And we know how he feels about Thufir. He likes Thufir. He does, absolutely. He likes Gurney best, but True. he's a fan of Thufir. But I do like this. I, like, um, I, I, I do like that he is a little bit more suspicious. He also is the one that was the potential victim of the attack, so he's a little more charged up, you could say. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, he's pulsating with anger throughout this entire thing. You can tell he's controlling it well, probably only because of his Bene Gesserit training, but a lot of the descriptions of him are of him 
you know, laboring to to maintain calm. And we can't forget the context of this conversation, Matt, because the shadow Mapes has revealed something very important to Paul, which is probably why he's suspicious of Hawat. He knows it's a specifically a traitor. Mm. And um, boy, does Mom pick up this and immediately. I, I love, I love the way these are written. I love how it says it'll worry her, but I must tell her what the shadow, what the Mapes woman said about a traitor among us. Period. Next sentence. What are you holding back? Jessica asked. Right. Yeah. This immediately, like- as soon as you think it. I like that's what I like that's what Herbert's trying to convey. You thought it, she read it. Maybe not like I read your mind like Spock, but you you betrayed something in just thinking about it. You shifted your weight, you turned your head, you exhaled wrong. I'm on to you. What are you holding back? Mm-hmm. That Sending is some reader of that is great, Benny Jesuit stuff right there. I just love. I mean, to, to take a pause from like this scene just to talk about the Benny Jesuits again. Like, I love that it's not magic. It's not witchcraft it's it's really just extreme extreme focus and attention and they have just honed it into an art form mm. like an art and a science that they until can we read. get to the voice <laughs> well yeah no that's that's some more powerful shit <laughs> that's some next level shit but yeah i do it is there's so much of that there's so much training for this and it's really just training in paying attention to people and and watching what they do and and, and watching what they're saying without realizing Mm-hmm. It's so cool. So Paul does spill the beans. He shrugs and recounts the exchange with Mapes. And Jessica thought, well, <laughs> okay. And Paul says, well, my father must know this at once. I'll radiograph it in code. In, in a, uh, I'll radiograph it in code and get it off. And she's like, absolutely not. In person, period. <laughs> absolutely. Right. Wait to see him alone. Exactly. Exactly. But I, but I just love this. I love this idea. Like, but we also must think this message could just be meant to get at us to sow distrust and suspicion. Period. What we I, have actually, to consider that. Yes, and I love what the way she says it. It continues where she says the people who gave it to us may believe it's mm, true, but it may mates. be that. <laughs> yeah, but it may be that the only purpose was to get this message to us. Think about that level of treachery, Matt, a Harkonnen agent giving misinformation to the Fremen in hoping it gets back to the Atreides. Right, right. Seems like I a stretch that. based on the Harkonnen's relationship with the, um, with the Harkonnen, uh, with, with the um, Fremen, but it's still well, no, wait a minute. smart. I think, okay, hold on. I think they're actually talking about the message from under the leaf. Um, yeah, because she, she showed Paul the leaf, told him its message, and then he says, my father must learn of this at once. And she says, no, you must wait. Oh, oh, uh, right, right, right. Right, right, right. So it's actually the message from, from La- uh, Lady Fenring. So, which replace, also- so replace Fremen with, with the Fenrings. Exactly. Meaning they, yeah. they may have been fed misinformation to hoping that it would get back to just Because what we do know is that this is Lady Fenring. This is a message, and she truly believes what she said. There's no deception there, but she might have the wrong information. Right. That's where it could be. Or disinformation. Ah, yeah. interesting. Good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> I, that, that's, that's, again, not many books are so great at building character while also simultaneously giving us interesting political intrigue. Right, right. Revealing plot and character at the same time. Indeed. That's that is, very difficult. That is good writing. Yep. You must tell your father privately and caution him about the aspect of it. And he understands, of course. <laughs> now, this is where we start to, to oh, see some this of is the, great. the codes, right? This is great. So, they're, they're hanging out. 
she turns to the tall reach of filter glass, stared out to the southwest where the center of Arrakis was sinking. And this is where they're just kind of chit-chatting. And, you know, uh, Paul's thinking about the cliffs and Duncan and all this stuff, just grubs her forehead, sensing her own fatigue. They're getting tired. There's so much peril here. They're considering what's going on. And she's looking out there, looking out there. And she sees blink, 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 blink. She's like, what is that way out there? She's looking, she's in this room, looking way out. And then she sees it again. It's described as blink, squirt, glimmer, blink. And she's like, wait a minute. That's not a star because it's in line below the mountain pass. That's light signaling. That's like a Morse code being signaled from the deep desert. <laughs> and she even realizes that the, the communications network that they have there has already been tapped by you know Duke Leto's people. Mm-hmm. So this is likely Harkonnen agents signaling to one another about what's gone on, what the Atreides have discovered, and what they mm. know. Mm. Very interesting. The answer is the, 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 the communinet was certain to be tapped by now. Yep. There came a tapping at the door behind them and the voice of a watch man. All clear, sir, my lady. Time to be getting the young master to his father. Because they hung out in this little secure room that Mar- Margot, uh, Margaret Fenring set up. They had not left it. They'd just been hanging out here looking outside, discussing all these things. And that's when they see these this like signals intelligence stuff way out in the distance. And they're like, what is that? Harkonnen intrigue. Harkonnen's signaling between one another to avoid being picked up, Matthew. Good shit. <laughs> this next one's short. This next chapter's yeah, short, but that's short good. That was chapter. really good. That was a, a lot of good intrigue there. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, this is where we'll be wrapping for the night. Um, uh, and the, this next chapter will be our last one for this episode, but... Yes, uh, this is chapter 11. What page in your book? That would be page 125. In 98 in mine. Is it your read? I think so. Uh, is it my read? What did I read the last one? What was the last one? A short one. You read UA, UA, UA. Actually, you know what? I think I read the last one. I think it's your turn. Oh, yeah. You're right. I'm an idiot. <laughs> it is said that the Duke Leto blinded himself to the perils of Arrakis, that he walked heedlessly into the pit would it not be more likely to suggest he had lived so long in the presence of extreme danger he misjudged its change and its intensity? Or is it possible he deliberately sacrificed himself that his son might find a better life? All evidence indicates the Duke was a man not easily hoodwinked. Ooh, I love that. I, that is very important, that, that consideration. Is it possible he deliberately sacrificed himself that his son might find a better life? From Muad'Dib Family Commentaries by the Princess Irulan. I also just love the idea of, uh, the, the first idea it presents of maybe he had lived so long in the presence of extreme danger that he misjudged a change in its intensity. Mm-hmm. Love that. Like the idea of somebody who, whose whole life has been, they've spent it as a target for, for many different people, for the Harkonnens, for the Emperor, for you know, rival houses. They live a life of, of high danger and being at threat all the time. I think it's very easy for a, a, somebody like us to be like, well, this seems like a dangerous situation and people are out to get you, so obviously you should just get away from it. But it's like, well, he has to live with that all the time. Like, mm-hmm. you have to accept this level of danger to accomplish anything or do anything. And that would be a little more blinding. But to be honest, I do I do lean towards this direction of maybe he is sacrificing himself, especially after reading this chapter. Right, absolutely. And there's a lot of 
consideration leading up to it, which is this idea of he just his just him thinking about the inevitability of what might happen. Him is it, is it here? He's considering never seeing Caladan again. I believe he, that's voiced here. Yes, that is in this chapter. Yeah, that happens right up front here. But this is basically just. Uh, the Duke Leto Atreides just leaning up against a parapet, considering many different things, including the news which we know has reached him based on this chapter, which is they tried to take the life of my son. I like how that is used almost as an extra. It's a refrain. As, yeah. yeah, it's a refrain. And in a piece of uh, punctuation. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. That, it, that It's the recurring thought that he can't get out of his head. We see how distracted he is by that horrible fact. Indeed, our sublime Padishah Emperor has charged me to take possession of this planet and end all dispute. And then he thinks our Padishah Emperor. <laughs> he keeps saying our sublime Padishah Emperor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's growing disdainful of this. And um, he's waiting for his son. They're, 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 they're ferrying them. We know based on the end of the last chapter that they're bringing them to the Duke. And he's waiting. He's Waiting and stewing and thinking. And so many great thoughts around where the little light circles Caladan. I'll never see my home again, he thinks. Mm. Absolutely. See, that's, that's, this is where I started to really go, oh, he, he expects, what I think, my own feelings about the Duke at this point is that he expects the Atreides to survive whatever attack is headed their way, mm-hmm. but he doesn't expect himself to. Like, I think he ha- is coming to terms with this idea that I probably won't survive whatever is coming, that this is a trap that is pointed probably towards me. And I think that's partly why he's so shocked by the idea that they tried to kill his son. Um, Cause he thinks it's probably pointed towards him. And I think he's reckoning with the idea that he's not going to be the one who survives it. And mm-hmm. what can he do to prolong his line and his family and protect his son and, 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 you know, and Jessica. And in, 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 the seriousness of the situation he finds himself in, which of course he's always known, but it's really calcified here when he realizes that there was a literal assassination attempt on his heir. Okay. Right. It suddenly becomes very real for him. It, it becomes a whole new ball game. Not just we're preparing, we're doing what we're going to do. We know there's treachery. We know things are sketchy. We're going to be careful. No, it's started. It's kicked off in earnest now. It's official. We we have a war going here, don't we? In right. in his in him grappling with his feelings, about him thinking for the boy's sake, if he's to have a home, I'll never think of Iraq as it's hell. It's, it's this hell I've reached before death, but it must inspire him, and I must keep those thoughts to myself. Right? Absolutely. I love this description too of when he's he's thinking about masking those feelings, thinking about trying to make a home for Paul. And then a wave of self-pity, immediately despised and rejected, swept through him. Uh, like, I just love him wrestling mm-hmm. with his own feelings in that way. Of and, course, of and course. And pushing, pushing past them purposefully. Like, the feelings are there, but he's, he's pushing them aside because he, he has the, the burden of leadership. It's crazy to think, you, you know, when, when, we're, when we're feeling these dark thoughts in our heads and these horrible thoughts in our heads, it's interesting to think that, of what we may think of in that moment that might give us a bit of respite. And in this moment, I find it utterly fascinating that Duke Leto thinks of Gurney. I love that because under the most stress, under the most horrific feelings, he thinks of his good friend in, 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 in the, the valorous, I believe he's called, I can't remember, Gurney, where we know that they have this relationship that he trusts 
him so much that they've served together for such a long time. And he served the Duke for such a long time that in this moment of doubt, he considers his good friend Gurney. And in what, in, in this romantic nature, you know, Gurney would find plenty of falling sands here, the Duke thought. The central wastelands beyond those moon-frosted cliffs were desert, barren rock dunes and blowing dust, an uncharted dry wilderness with here and there along its rim and perhaps scattered through it, knots of Fremen. If anything could buy a feature for the Atreides line, the Fremen just might do it. But, he, but Gurney is the one he thinks of in that moment, right? Yeah, absolutely. He's looking for things to hold on to as anything. sources of strength. Sources of strength. I also love this idea that both Paul and his father are the two people who seem to have the most, I wouldn't quite call it faith yet, but the most hope for the Fremen. Like we, we kind of see Paul early on having the most curiosity about them and being interested in them and, and wanting to learn more. And I think you start to realize that he sees them as this possible bulwark against the Harkonnens. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time we really fully realize, I mean, in the earlier chapter, we talked about um, the Duke talks to Paul about the possibility of securing them, but it, he goes about it in such a an interestingly dry way of like laying it out as a possibility. The same way he would lay it out to like some generals talking about a battle. Like this is a, this is one of the possibilities we could go down. This is a thing that could happen that we could take advantage of. Sure. But in this moment, I love that we're hearing it in his own thoughts. That he really does believe that they're that might be their best hope is the somehow with the Fremen. Indeed. Yep. Absolutely. It's something they share. It's something they share. And it's something they know that the Harkonnen didn't penetrate for 80 years. That's something Leto is very aware of. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's really the biggest point about them, that they are such enemies of the Harkonnen and they have remained so secretive to them and are unknown to the Harkonnen that that's, it's a blind spot for them. And they're in the deep desert, so good luck, right? What's there to gain going out there? You're already getting the spice melange. You're already making the money. There's nothing really motivating the Harkonnens to go out there, to, to engage, right? There's no, right. What, what, there's no nothing to win. <laughs> <laughs> right. They will increase profits by dealing with them, so why would they care? Exactly. Just let them be. <clears throat> So this leads to uh, the presence of some men. They're all kind of shooting the shit. And then Gurney and the Duke uh, step step forward and they start having a discussion. Yes, immediately asking, how many men can you let Howitt have? He he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and that's when he's like, um, is Thufer in trouble, sire? He's lost two agents, but his advance men gave us an excellent line on the entire Harkonnen setup. If we move fast, we can gain security, the breathing space we require. And that's when he's like, done deal. I got you 300 of my best. Of my best. Yep. Good man. Good man, that Gurney Halleck. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and that's when he says, hey, I need a favor from you, buddy. Yeah, this is when we really start to learn how crucial these spice hunters actually are. Yeah, they've been mentioned before, and we understand that Leto had originally said to Jessica he was going to have to talk to these guys and convince him to stay. But now he's thinking this is a better mission, a better a better task for Gurney, knowing the way he is with people, knowing he's got this romantic flair about him, this charisma about him, this this way about him that makes people sort of want to gravitate to him. In 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 that sort of, you know, Leto is you know, to is like that sort of commissioned officer. He's like that company commander. And Gurney's like the sergeant that everyone he, 
you know, has this like respect for because he's like one of the regular people like them, right? And totally. maybe yeah. maybe his idea is Gurney can relate to these people a little bit easier. And uh, yeah, there's 800, and we want we want them to enlist with us. And he's like, well, how strong of a persuasion, sire? He's like, I want. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I want willing cooperation. Those men have experience and skills we need, right? It, it's important, and uh, and that's that. And that's when they discuss the possibility of assassins being placed among them. Dude, I love this. Was such a nice, subtle dig at the Harkonnens that the Duke gets off here because he's. You know, <laughs> I think it is how it. Yeah, how it believes there could be some bad ones planted in the group, but he does see assassins in every shadow. Um, <laughs> but the Duke says, "Yeah, and there are some he hasn't found. I think planting sleepers in this outgoing crowd would show too much imagination." Harkonnens. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> I like that. Do you? It, it, it's funny because on the one hand, you think is he making a mistake here, but it's probably a safe bet based on what he's saying. Because that is a stretch. That, that, there, that, that there are 800 of these spice hunters and they're leaving. And that for the Duke points out that the fact that these guys are actually wanting to get off planet and go ahead and leave, that kind of shows that they're probably not a part of any Harkonnen intrigue. And if the Harkonnens really were smart enough to put five or six sleeper agents among them, expecting uh, the Duke's men to try and persuade some to stay and give those sleeper agents an opportunity to stay. That's a big, that's a big reach. That's a lot of, that's a lot of layers. And he's like, ah, they're not smart enough for that shit. Come on. Yeah. Suspiciously, <laughs> three guys jump forward at the opportunity to stay. He's like, they're a little too eager. Last All cannon. three of us, sir. And Last we, cannon, those guys. to not be searched. <laughs> Last cannon, those guys. Call it a day. Uh, but no, yeah, it, it, I, it, yeah, I do. It is. It's also, there's a, there's a lot of wild sort of, uh, intrigue plots here because remember Leto's the one who knew uh, livery. Am I saying it right? The Har- the yeah, you got and, it. Yeah, you got the it. Harkonnen. And, I always say there's a couple words that I say wrong every time I say them. <laughs> it's so annoying. But um, the Harkonnen livery, he sniffed that out, and that's almost that's a, a crazy thing to do. So he's probably right on the money with this one, but we don't know. We'll see. It's true. I like I like how I like how uh, Gurney's like yeah probably <laughs> yeah you're right <laughs> you're right yeah, it's no fight it's fine <laughs> and uh, I like I like this stuff I, again I like the competence of Gurney here because he's like listen what do you offer and he's like twenty percent he's like well these guys got a fat paycheck they got going they got they got pockets full and the wanderlust on them they got their termination pay. And Lena gets impatient here. I like how he says it impatiently, and we have to just infer it in our mind. But he's like, then use your own discretion, right? The treasury is not bottomless. But I do like how Gurney's like, you got to give me a little more room to play with in that if you want me to convince these guys to stay. Right. They've already got their termination pay. They got the wanderlust on mm-hmm. them. They're They've ready already to been go told party. they can leave. They're out of here. They're gone, baby. And you got to imagine, it's a tough ask to ask a bunch of guys who've spent probably years on Arrakis one of the most notoriously inhospitable planets in the universe. <laughs> and they're finally on their, they're, they're clinking their frosty beer mugs together, getting ready to leave all happy. Like, Hey, would you come back for a slight raise? Uh, yeah. I, the only, the only thing ask. I can, the only thing I can compare it to that we could wrap our heads around is just like, imagine a fishing boat coming in after like nine weeks and you get to the doctor and like, Hey guys, 
Like you Guess better have a, you better have a compelling offer to turn tell tell them they got to go back out to sea in a day. You know, <laughs> I know you've been out there for eight months and you expected five months of shore leave. How about you go back out next week for ten percent dollars more? <laughs> we need another thousand. We need another thousand tons of cod. <laughs> we know you had to bury two guys at sea, but come on. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> oh, Jesus, brutal. I do like that though. That's good stuff. <laughs> but also, okay, I actually wanted to ask you about this because there, there's there's something interesting here that I'm not sure I fully understood the right way. Um, because as as he sends off uh, Gurney, he says one more more thing to him um, after he promises 300 of the best. And I'll report to you. Where shall I report to you when I've completed my chores? He says, I've taken over a council room topside here. We'll hold staff there. I want to arrange a new planetary dispersal order with armored squads going out first. Halleck stopped in the act of turning away, caught Leto's eye. Are you anticipating that kind of trouble, sire? I thought there was a judge of the change here. Now, planetary dispersal order. Is that an emergency evacuation off the planet plan they're trying to make? Um, I think, think that's what it is? yes, I think that's part of it. I, I think, and, and here's why the judge of change would see to the transition of power being peaceable. Right. Right. And I think that's, that's part of his, I think that's part of his responsibility is to ensure that there is no trouble like that. But Duke's like, well, I suspect, I suspect both open battle and secret battle. There'll be blood of plenty spilled here before we're through. And he's just saying, I don't know what the Harkonnen plan, but they do plan something, and we should we should make contingents to to ensure that nothing bad happens. Because there are two very different things here. There's convincing the spice hunters to stay, and then there's the three hundred of Hawat's men, uh, the three hundred of Gurney's men that Hawat needs, right? Right. And they're two separate things, kind of going on. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because they, yeah, those three hundred men will be are, are helping him uh, obtain the spice hunters, correct? Like he's going with them for that. Yes, yes, exactly. The Spice Hunters are, are not the 300 men. That's two different things. The 300 men are the guys off-world, and, and you know, he doesn't, want, he, he doesn't want any issues down there, right? He's, he's playing, he's just being, I think Leto's just being overly cautious here. You're right, right, right. So, um, he, I, I like, there's a bunch of, like, uh, interesting quotes from Gurney here, just him doing poetry and stuff, and Leto just shaking his head, right? Halleck was a continual amazement, he thinks, a head full of songs, quotations, and flowery phrases in the heart of an assassin when it came to dealing with the Harkonnens. <laughs> a romantic man, but he knows evil when he sees it. <laughs> Very good. Um, did, did, we, did we cover that question sufficiently? I just want to make sure that we're, we're, not, conf- we're not confused on that. I think so. I mean, I think, yeah, it's, it's just the idea of the Duke arranging contingencies for, for, I guess, anything that could happen at this point. Yeah. They're talking about the 300. He, he tells him to report to you when I've completed my chores. I've taken over a council room. I want to arrange a new planetary dispersal order with armored yeah. guard squads going first. Yeah. He's like, that, Ooh. That, that to me sounded like, yeah, in case shit really hits the fan, we need armored vehicles so we can all blast off of this planet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, that's, you know, there's not much else that goes on here, right? Other than I, I, I do like the way it the, ends the, the, with with <clears throat> with the Duke walking among his men. He he, he yes. sees a propaganda corpsman, stops to give him a message that could be relayed through the channels, telling about men where their women could be found, where they're <laughs> where they're safe and safe and secure from the the problems that are starting to crop up. But just this idea uh, yes. of 
of him walking and 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 showing confidence and showing calm. Command must always look confident. He thought all that faith riding on your shoulders while while you sit in the critical seat and never show it. He breathed a sigh of relief when the lift swallowed him, and then he could turn and face the impersonal doors. They have tried to take the life of my son. A good show, indeed. I love that. I mean, it's just the idea of the Duke wearing the the burden of of leadership. Um, I just love that that that's where we end. That he he has to push out even that horrible thought of his son was almost killed today. He, that's not something he gets to wear on his sleeve. Absolutely. And what I love about this, Matt, is this all of this stuff with Leto. It's a departure from everything we've been doing in the rest of this book, which is just all of this stuff with prophecy and things set in motion and for the father, nothing. This is just boots on the ground strategy and thinking and planning. Mm-hmm. It's very be much pre- like being prepared. Yeah. It's very, it's, it's personified by Leto. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's neat. It's really cool. Good stuff, man. That was a fun chapter. That was a that was a great that was a great discussion. A lot of fun to be had in that episode. That's good. It's good shit. Excellent. <clears throat> well, we are going to be diving into uh chapter twelve next time on the podcast, Matthew. And um so for those of you reading along, you're gonna be starting for the next pod with what we call chapter 12. It'll be our episode three. And it and that starts is page 133. Yep, in page 105 for me. And it says, over the exit of the Arakeen landing field, crudely carved as though with a poor instrument. That's where we're starting. And then we're ending with, I believe, 15, right? Yep, it, it ends on page 204, but the chapter opener... For that chapter, I am looking for now. My father, the Padishah Emperor, took me by the hand one day, and I sensed in the ways my mother had taught me that he was disturbed. Um, What page is that, Matthew? That would be page 171 in my book. And 134 in mine. So there you go, man. That's about 55 pages we'll do next time. There you go. Hell yeah. Excellent. Enjoying it so far. I feel the tension rising. Mm, I like yep. I like the slow rising of the tension so far. I like I like us knowing the the intrigue that is to come. We already know who the traitor is, and we watch our characters come so close to the truth of that traitor and and not there yet. It it's, it's good, it man. takes a, it takes a special skill to tell you and then still in, intrigue you, right? Absolutely. It, that's very difficult. That's very advanced writing. I guess that's probably why it's considered one of the best science fiction books of all time. Wow. I'm really breaking news here. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess it's pretty good or whatever. (laughs) Pretty, pretty awesome. It's pretty totally impressive and influential and great. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Awesome. Well, this has been a lot of fun and uh, we will see you guys next time. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to mind killer a Dune podcast by LSG Media. New episodes drop on the second and last Friday of the month. Visit us online at libertystreetgeek.net. That's libertystreetgeek.net. And don't forget to join us to keep the Dune discussion going over on our Discord server at libertystreetgeek.net slash discord. That's libertystreetgeek.net slash discord.